five, four, three, two, one. Bazinga. Bazinga. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Now Showing podcast. I'm your host, as always, Sam Houston. I'm joined once again by my wonderful co-host, Lewis. Today, we're talking again about the newest Batman adaptation, The Batman, starring Robert Pattinson as the titular Cape Crusader. Uh, but this time, we're joined by someone else. We're joined by Neil Vag. Hello, Neil. Hey, how you doing? So, who are you? What are you doing here? Tell me a little bit about what you do. <laughs> Who am I? I don't know. Who am I? Um, so I am a podcaster. I'm co-host on the Get Your Comic On podcast. We release new episodes fortnightly-ish on all major platforms. We're also a kind of pop culture news and review website covering everything geeky and everything film, TV, comic books, you name it. Well, we're going to be talking uh, a little bit about our favourite Batman film prior to the uh the new Battinson version earlier, so uh, later, sorry. So we'll hear your thoughts on that. But you know, as someone that's obviously into this whole world, how does Batman stack up against the rest? Like, how high is he in your superhero draft list? How how much do you value him compared to the rest of them? So bat ranking, it has landed itself at kind of number three, almost number two of solo live action Batman movies for me. Um, it has completely eclipsed the Nolan trilogy in my eyes and is probably the most Batman-ish Batman it could possibly be. Oh, very good. That's very high praise. Very um, high praise. Well, we'll, uh, we'll get into that in a second, but we'll start off with what we always start off with, which is uh, what we've watched. Um, so uh, we'll start off with, with myself because I've probably got the most to say. So before we get into our, our Batman-ness, we'll just talk a little bit about what we've watched this week. So, I have seen quite a lot because we've done a few podcasts in a row that haven't required us to do what we've watched because we've done Oscar stuff and the Batman quick cut uh, episode and stuff. So, uh, I have seen uh, The Wheel of Fortune Fantasy because you came down to London for the premiere, uh, Lewis, which we saw Neil at in the line. Uh, so there's a little Yeah, we haven't even addressed that. We haven't even spoken about the fact that we met up again. Yes, we have met up. Yeah, we did, yeah. Technically, all three of us met up because, you know, we did see O'Neill and waved at Neil. That is true, yeah, we did wave. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, me and you met up again uh, with JL this time. Uh, and we came down and we watched The Batman, of course, at the, the previous screening. And we also saw Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, which is the new uh, Hamaguchi film. Well, I knew, I think it actually came out before Drive My Car, but has been given a re-release in the UK, I think mainly because of how well Drive My Car has been received. Uh, and we also watched The Godfather, which we're going to do in detail in a bit because, you know, it's getting its re-release um, for the 50th anniversary. I thought Wheel of Fortune Fantasy was very good. Uh, I think that maybe it doesn't necessarily up to the, to the hype the same degree as Driving My Car, but it's a very interesting story. Three different, um, not three different uh, individual vignettes, little tiny stories about um, well, a few different overlapping themes, but Fortune, of course, at the uh, centre of it all. And yeah, very interesting watching some really strong supporting performances. Uh, so you might see them come up at the Alternative Oscars. So I'll definitely recommend, especially if you're a big fan of Drive My Car. Uh, he's Hamaguchi is just he's a wonderful director but just unbelievable screenwriter as well the uh, I believe he wrote that as well it's just unbelievably over him I also saw Marry Me um, which is the same day as The Godfather so it made for an interesting double bill um, I will say yeah it's better than I thought it'd be um, Owen Wilson J-Lo rom-com has a ridiculous premise you know she just walks out and um, 
and and just decides to marry someone from her uh, concert on the spot after finding out that her partner has been cheating on her. Um, this is a comic book film, by the way. I don't know if we need this. I don't know if uh, is it. I don't know if this is being covered on uh, on your podcast, Neil. But the uh, new <laughs> J Lo rom com is an adaptation of a graphic novel. Um, no way. So, yeah, it is. Yeah, really? yeah, it is. So, um, <laughs> so I guess we can see that from uh, if you want to if you want to hear about Marry Me, I guess you know go over to uh, all of Neil's platforms because it should be considered uh, a comic. <laughs> Um, Who knew? I had absolutely no idea. Yeah, no, it's um, yeah, I didn't expect either, but um, apparently it is. Uh, and yeah, no, it was really fun actually. Uh, it was very cutesy. It's probably the most inoffensive rom com I've ever seen. The like the, you know, the, the three act thing of they get together, then something goes wrong, and then they get together. The something goes wrong is so weak. It's just kind of happy fest start to finish. But it did. I thought it was fun, so it did its job. I think. I also saw Cyrano, um, which is the like the umpteenth adaptation of Serrano de Bergerac. Uh, this time, instead of having a facial disfigurement, uh, they have reimagined Cyrano, uh, Cyrano who, who, no, I think he's called Serrano in this, isn't he? Even though it's called Cyrano de Bergerac, he's called Serrano in the film for some reason. Um, Is he? Yeah, I think so. Uh, and he's reimagined as, as a dwarf at this time, Peter Dinklage playing. Serrano, um, you also saw it, I believe, so you can give your thoughts on it as well, Lewis. Um, but I thought it was uh, a mixed bag. The production design is absolutely excellent. The costume design is absolutely excellent. I've got an Oscar nomination for that. Uh, it starts off really well. And I was thinking, wow, this is the best musical of the year. Until mm, about an hour in and it started to get a little bit boring. And I think actually, if anything, the it, it's so heavily focused on the first act that the, the, the kind, of, um, kind of major plot... Uh, Era, the kind of the, the the conflict in the center of the film feels really rushed um but then it also felt very slow it was it was i think tonally uh kind of pacing wise was, was done quite poorly and also i did think it felt very stagey it's all an adaptation of a musical version of surrounded the Bergerac. Uh, but dinklage absolutely shines i mean Haley Haley bennett's brilliant as well but peter dinklage is absolutely excellent so i think he he should have been got in more conversations for uh nomination stuff and there were people thought he might get an oscar nomination for it and i think he should have um and the last things i saw was yesterday i saw the duke which you also saw so you can talk about as well um uh, which is a i think i don't know if you've already talked about it but it's uh a true story of uh a a man from newcastle in the 60s who stole a uh, priceless painting, very expensive painting, and held the government to ransom to try and campaign for social improvement, such as um, free TV licenses for OAPs, played by Jim Broadbent, starring uh, Helen Mirren as well. Uh, and yeah, it was a lovely uh, kind of feel-good tale, a little bit like Marry Me. I thought it was pretty inoffensive. It, it was fun. It wasn't an amazingly made film, but it was really, really enjoyable. I have got a story about the, screen, uh, the the cinema experience, which I'll leave to the end of the podcast. Um, but it was <laughs> a very weird thing happened in the cinema. But the film itself was was very nice. I didn't like it to the degree that you did, but I thought it was definitely worth a watch. And it's definitely one of those films that will appeal to uh, the older generation for sure. And the last thing I watched that's worth talking about, as well as a rewatch of the, of the Godfather and the Batman, uh, was The Master, Paul Thomas Anderson's film from 2012. I saw it. Uh, I told you I was going to see it on 35mm. I actually saw it on 70mm, Lewis. Um, 
And it's the first time I've ever seen a modern film projected on 70mm, and it looked absolutely beautiful. Um, it was a, it was very good. I, I I'd say I, I liked it, not loved it, though. Um, it's, you know, it has been called Paul Thomas Anderson's most inaccessible work, you know, and I can understand that. But there's definitely an awful in there that I do love. The performances of Phoenix and uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, in the two central roles, uh, alongside Amy Adams, who has a wonderful supporting performance. Uh, yeah, the performances are absolutely excellent, and and kind of the exploration of what is cult is uh, is very interesting. Um, it did, however, for me, not necessarily work as a film in in some aspects. And I thought it was felt really long, uh, which you know to a degree where I was kind of kind of checking my watch uh, a lot. But it was a really interesting film. It was a really beautiful film. Um, visually uh mixed in with the absolute opposite uh, when it comes to, to the narrative if you can call it that uh but yeah the central performances are the key thing here it was absolutely wonderfully uh acted by the the two two leads um and yeah so that's another one of uh that's the second time i've seen a paul and tom sanders film i'll admit i did prefer licorice pizza so jl said this is the worst of his films i can officially say i do not think licorice pizza is the worst of his films but i did uh <laughs> like the master in a lot of ways otherwise so again you you aren't uh you know a member of the podcast normally neil but uh so you won't have you know since last episode but is there anything that you're not going to be talking about when it comes to to the batman today or your favorite batman film otherwise um that you've seen recently that you'd like to to mention i'm just looking back on my letterbox to see what i've been watching recently and so it's like the batman the batman the batman (laughs) and then i had kind of a lazy weekend of sort of re-watching a couple of movies so i went back to 1994 star trek generations for a bit of trek nostalgia given that picard is now back on amazon prime at the moment um re-watched uh sonic the hedgehog getting ready for uh press stuff for sonic the hedgehog 2 and actually it was first time i'd rewatched it since i saw it at the cinema initially and i remember thinking it was okay and actually i quite enjoyed it on a rewatch it has i don't know what it is there's something about it that i just kind of can just kick back and enjoy that film Mm. which was Mm. quite nice um so i'm actually kind of excited for the second one now because i think it does look like an improvement over the first and i think they've actually put some creative thought into the characters and bringing them from the game into the film. So I'm kind of interested to see what they do. And then I watched, um, last night I watched Encanto, which I've actually never seen before. So that was a first watch for me. Uh, It totally passed me by when it was first released. So I watched it last night and actually I thought it was quite a sweet film. I really enjoyed uh, the soundtrack. I thought it was really good. It was a great cast as well. So I kind of, I don't know how I managed to miss it, but it was, um, it was a nice film. Well, I have to applaud you for missing it because I feel like it's the only thing I've heard uh, over the last two months is just the uh, the, the main <laughs> songs um, yes. on repeat. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah, no, I think um, both of us liked Encanto Lewis. Um, neither of us were massive on it, but I think definitely, yeah. I would definitely agree with it that it's very sweet and the music is very good. So I would definitely agree with that. It was quite slow for the first kind of, for the first act. And then I was starting to think, actually, I'm not sure I'm going to make it all the way through this, but it kind of picked up towards the end and it did grab at some point after halfway managed to grab me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's um, a semi-inventive... I, mean, I guess it's technically a superhero film, really, so it kind of ties in today because, you know, it's about their superpowers. But yeah, um, true. It, it did feel like a kind of a story that, that Disney told a lot of times, but it had a nice, quite interesting uh, twist to it that I thought made it feel yeah. a little bit unlike uh, some of their kind yeah. of back catalogue. But, yeah, definitely... Um, Definitely a, a good watch and, and obviously one that's been nominated for a couple of Oscars. So we'll be talking about that when we talk about Oscars coverage later on. Okay. Um, so what about you, Lewis? 
Uh, I've not been very busy watching much. I haven't watched much uh, since we last uh, recorded. I spoke about it. I did speak about the Duke last time we recorded. I very much enjoyed it. Yeah. Uh, and I'm pretty much going to echo everything that you said about Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy. It was uh, it was very, very good. I didn't love it as much as I love Drive My Car. <clears throat> but it's still unbelievably well made. And like you say, Hamaguchi is an incredible director. But the screenplay is where the, the magic lies. And... The Wheel of Fortune of Unset is impeccably well written, and the the stories obviously they're about fortune, and you know only one of them has an element of fantasy, I think, um, and that's the the best one, the last one, the last story of the three is the best one. And going into it blind, uh, I mean, I had no idea. I hadn't seen a trailer. I hadn't read a synopsis. I'd intentionally been avoiding everything, mm-hmm. and I thought it was magnificent. It was amazing. And Hamaguchi, there's he's just so he's very quickly becoming one of my favorite directors and i've only seen two of his films so that's saying a lot about how much i love both of the films that i've seen um yeah i really very much enjoyed wheel of fortune and fantasy and getting in to see it uh, we went to see it obviously at the bfi which was very nice yes um and uh, that was nice we got to see it together as well so it was nice that you jl and i got to see it together mm. we actually got to watch something together uh, that wasn't the batman or the godfather um and then I watched The Godfather, obviously with you, uh, which we'll be going into as an episode later. So I'll just say we watched it. And then I watched Cyrano. And I'm, I was very surprised by Cyrano because for the past few months, the trailer has been playing before every film when I've been to Odeon. And I've thought that looks thoroughly average. You know, it looks like it's going to be decent, but not great. Um, I loved Cyrano. I thought it was fantastic. I, I do agree with you that it kind of, lost me a bit after the first hour and a half or so kind of when they go off to war i kind of my interest dipped dramatically but the first hour and a half or hour or however long it was was unbelievable and i genuinely was sat there thinking this is one of the best films i've seen this year this is fantastic and i'm shocked that peter dinklage is the only one who is getting oscar attention from this film i think Haley bennett is magnificent and kelvin harrison jr is as well I also think Ben Mendelsohn is great. I, I was I did I um, forgot to say this uh, to cut across. I think that yeah. the the biggest achievement of Cyrano is that it made notable Dilf uh, Ben Mendelsohn unattractive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it did do that, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> so fair play. That's a strange piece of film criticism to give, but yeah, I, I do agree. Um, but yeah, I thought all the performances were great, particularly Haley Bennett. Uh, and I thought this was one of the best, technically, technically it was one of the best films I've seen this year. The directing is fantastic, the cinematography is excellent, uh, the production design obviously, uh, oh no, the production design didn't get an Oscar nomination, the costume design obviously got an Oscar nomination, which is fantastic. Uh, and I believe the costume designer for this is the same costume designer for Spencer, so at least she's getting recognised for something this year, I believe. I could be wrong with that, but I do believe it is the same costume designer. Uh, the production designer... Uh, the production design is amazing uh, and the choreography as well there's one scene where uh, they're all dancing it's kelvin harrison jr's first musical number and they're all dancing and they all have big kind of 18th 19th century puffy french sleeves and they're all kind of wafting in the wind as they move their arms and it's so beautifully choreographed and, and well executed i really think it's magnificent and i, I was very very impressed with cyrano the biggest surprise of, of 2022 for me so far, because I was convinced Ooh. it was going to be, um, I was convinced it was going to be average. And when it was very, very good, I was very shocked. Uh, the screenplay as well, I think was great. I really think the fact that this has 
one Oscar nomination for costume design is uh, is a bit a bit of a travesty. I really do think production design, the screenplay is fantastic. Peter Dinklage is amazing. Haley Bennett is amazing. The direction is great. The cinematography is great. I I genuinely was blown away by how much I like Cyrano. Yeah, I, I definitely did not love it to the same degree, but I do see a lot of your positives. I, I definitely agree with that uh, point on the choreography, for sure. Uh, yeah. I did think of that. And I think the opening scene where Cyrano kind of introduces himself uh, in the theatre is one of the, the best scenes from a musical this year, and that kind of rap that he does as he walks up to the stage um, is really, really good and is you know ups there, up there with anything that, that West Side Story or In the Heights or... I'm yeah. not going to mention yeah. Darren Hansen, but you know, I guess I just did. <laughs> uh, but it, yeah. yeah, for sure. Uh, I did again. I did think it was a bit stagey though, because I think the fact that the fact that I was so shell shocked when they went to war, I think says how I how it felt so enclosed throughout the first yeah, I agree. two acts. I, I definitely agree with that. Um, I was watching it and I was thinking like, this is a five stars, and then they went off to war, and I was like, oh no, it's not. <laughs> yeah, this it's is not. a four and a half. This is a four. This is a yeah. I ended up yeah. giving it a four. Because um, it, it did lose me in the in the the final act, uh, and the final thing that I watched, I just realised I watched the third thing worth talking about is um it was it recently had its one hundredth anniversary, uh, and it is of course F W Morneau's Nosferatu or Nosferatu, a symphony of horror. Um, Ooh, now you know classic. this obviously. I don't know if you know this Neil about me, but I hate horror films. I can't watch horror films. So I went into this, even though it's 1922, went into this with a lot of trepidation because I am not a fan of horror <sighs> I'm very easily scared. Um, and I went into Nosferatu um, quite nervous. And it is magnificent. It's unbelievable. Um, it is scary, even by my standards, which are very low. It's very scary. It's not jump scary, obviously. Um, the kind of technological limitations meant that it couldn't be scary in a modern sense. Yeah, but it's very the horror is atmospheric. It feels very eerie and scary, um, and you know, especially now it's one hundred years old. Now I, I was writing an article about its centenary, um, and so I delved into it, decided to watch it, and it's so revolutionary. I can't, even though it's a silent film, if you ignore that it's a silent film, this does not feel like it was made in nineteen twenty-two. It is revolutionary it's absolutely unbelievable that the character of count orlock is so creepy and so well shot and the cinematography is unbelievable like the the iconic shot of his shadow creeping up the staircase is just unbelievable and it's so well executed and so well done it's one of the best films ever made and also i don't obviously i don't watch much horror films um, but it's very easy to see how this became the blueprint of visual horror. You know, so many horror films, so many staples and now cliches of horror films owe themselves to this visually. You know, the idea of just something lurking in the corner, like mm. the shot of, of Orlock in the uh, doorframe, taking up the entire doorframe, his stance, the way he holds himself, uh, the performance of uh, Max Schreck is is so so good and so creepy and it's just a perfect example of early early uh masterful early cinematic work um, yeah and I'm, I'm very excited to go back and, and watch some more films of that era i know you've watched a lot more uh, a lot of german expressionism films uh, uh recently and i'm excited to delve into them as well after this because this really 
really impressed me. Uh, it's a brilliant excited. film. Brilliant it film. It is, yeah. I'm actually it's joking. So I'll, and I'll it's amazing how influential it was with Dracula as well, because it's a it's a yeah. um, it's a rip off of Dracula. Basically, yeah, they couldn't get the they didn't want to they didn't want to pay the rights, um, so they changed the names, changed the setting, and tried to get away with it, and it didn't work. Uh, Bram Stoker's estate sued uh, and won, and all copies of the film were ordered to be destroyed, uh, and the studio went bankrupt because of it, and. It was thought that all the copies were destroyed, but a few pirated copies survived. So we have piracy to thank for Nosferatu's <laughs> yes. existence today. If it weren't for piracy, if it weren't for film piracy, we wouldn't have Nosferatu because it was thought to be lost and it was restored. And it's it's a, it's an amazing story. So many things about vampires came from Nosferatu as well. You know, the idea that you a vampire will be killed by sunlight that came from this in in yeah. Dracula the novel. It was just they didn't like sunlight; it hurt them. It, in this, it killed them. Uh, this is where so many of those things come from, and it's it's just an amazing, amazing film and an important film and something that was really interesting to delve into. And I'm glad that I, I can check it off my yeah. cinephile watch list. <laughs> I'm actually quite embarrassed to say I've not seen Osrato. Um I've seen other... Jim you should be embarrassed. Ones. Yeah, I've seen Cabinet of <laughs> Category, but I haven't seen, I haven't seen Osferatu yet. Um, it's very good. I think the, not... the 100th anniversary of its German release is on the 14th, so maybe you should watch it for that. Maybe I should, yeah. Um, yeah, it's definitely one that's been been, uh, been missing off the list. I'm not surprised you say it was scary, though, because I think that a lot of um, those films... Because of the silentness, because of the the, the attitudes of the time, I think the, the age itself just makes a lot of things that are from that time quite scary to look at now. Uh, I, I find I found uh, the yeah. cabinet of Doctor Caligari very creepy <clears throat> from probably a very different reason um, to that it was uh, first intended. But certainly, yeah. I will be trying to tick off my list uh, soon because I've been looking. I've been watching quite a lot of silent films recently. Yeah. Okay. Um, before we get on to Batman, just quickly to go through news. Um, alongside this episode, the same time this episode drops, we're also going to be dropping uh, our live SAG reaction. So this is coming a bit late, um, but the Screen Actors Guild um, had their awards the other day. forgot that we the other day. Yeah, it hasn't been released. Um, we did, a live, we did a, uh, our thoughts on it as it dropped, and, and you read me the, the winners just like minutes after they, they'd won. So we'll, you know, if you want to hear our thoughts on the SAG winners, you can do so with that um but there was also the the uh independent spirit awards uh which uh came out today uh just to read out a few of the winners um well we're very happy to say that um that zola did very very well uh which has been neglected completely by the academy uh it's yeah, we love zola. Had one yep and it won best female lead for taylor page and it won best editing uh joy mcmillan uh so very much deserved uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal's uh, Lost Daughter won Best Director, Best Feature, Best and Best Screenplay, and Troy Kotzer won uh, Best Supporting Male. Michael Sarnofsky won uh, Best Screenplay. Michael Sarnofsky and Vanessa Block for Pig on Screenplay, Best Male Lead, Red Rocket Simon Rex, which we haven't seen yet, and Passing won Best Supporting Female and Best Cinematography, and Drive My Car won Best International Film. So. The uh, oh, and the John. Of course, this is one of the best award, the, the coolest awards um, that uh, that comes out. The uh, I'm never sure how to pronounce his name. John Cassavetes or Cassavetes Cassavetes uh, Award, which is the best feature made under five hundred thousand dollars, which is one of my oh, favorite yeah. awards every year. And this year it was won by Shiva Baby, which we knew talked about. You liked a lot more than me. Yeah. 
So yeah, and that was that was very cool. So Spirit Awards once again proving they are far cooler than the Oscars. Uh, seeing Zola and passing win awards is just very cool. So good on that. Um, and also the other news that we wanted to quickly uh, mention was the Weird Al Yankovic uh, biopic, uh, the also known as Weird the Al Yankovic story. Uh, has progressed, it's developed more, and Danny Radcliffe has been seen. His first images, you can go find out, or you can go Google his first images of him as Weird Al, uh, the very interesting casting in a very anticipated movie. I'm very excited for it. And also, this week, we, uh, Evan Rachel Wood uh, has been uh, announced to be playing Madonna, and there's been a picture released. Uh, what do you think of that casting, Lewis? Has she been announced in the film, Madonna, or is it for something else? No, in the Weird Al Yankovic biopic. Oh, right. Oh, I see. I thought you were yeah. talking about in the Madonna No, in the, the Madonna art biopic, which is also coming out, uh, yeah. hasn't been announced yet. I think that they should just have her, and then it would be like a biopic uh, cinematic universe. Yes, let's have a Madonna <laughs> cinematic universe. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yeah, exactly. Marvel has uh, set the stage for Madonna. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's an all right casting. I don't really know much about Evan Rachel Wood. She's a great actress. Uh, I she was assume great that in, she's uh... good enough to do Madonna. She was great in Cajillionaire, of course. She was. Which you both loved. Yeah, and the same news that comes out every week, which is this person's been cast in, in this Marvel film, and this person's been cast in this Marvel film. This time, it's that Alessandro Nivola, who was the the uncle character in... Um, well, that's what I know him from recently. In, he would play the uncle character in uh, The Many Saints of Newark. Uh, we were playing the villain in the Craven the Hunter film, which I completely forgot about even existing. Uh, and Freddie Alvarez is directing the new Alien movie. Okay, so uh, I think... there is another piece of news that's been announced while we're recording. Oh, really? That they're they're make Amazon are making a live action God of War series. Wow, very interesting. Well, that Don't that has a lot of potential. That. So, I go for it. Um, yeah, that sounds very good. Actually, yeah. I have a lot Just of faith in Amazon. I'm going to give. I, I I think Amazon will be major players. I mean, look how good uh, Lord of the Rings looks. Yeah. Okay, so let's start off uh, with our conversation on our favourite pre-Battinson Batman film. So I just wanted to know what's your favourite Batman film and why? That that simple. Just want to know that. I'll start off with you, Lewis. What is your favourite Batman film? My favourite Batman film, perhaps a, an odd take for an adult man to have, but um, it is the Lego Batman movie. I think the Lego Batman movie tells a wonderful story of Batman. Uh, I don't read comics, so I don't really know anything about the backstory of the character, but my understanding of Batman from the films that I've seen, it's done very, very well in the Lego Batman movie. Uh, It's a story of the whole Bat family, and it's told extremely well. Batman feels isolated, and he learns to open himself up and accept help from others because he can't really do anything on his own. It's beautifully animated, and it's very, very funny. Uh, and I really do just love it. I can't get over how much I love it. It's one of the most easily rewatchable films ever. I do love The Dark Knight. The Dark Knight is amazing. But the Lego Batman movie just edges it out for me. The, the Lego Batman movie is excellent. And I, I desperately, desperately want a sequel. So what is your favourite Batman film. Sam. Sam. Not Sam. Neil next. Neil. Wait, what, <laughs> yeah. What is your favourite Batman film, Neil? Before right. the Batman, Mine. not counting the Batman. 
Yeah, not counting the Batman. Well, yeah, the, no, the Batman does not land top of the list. Uh, mine actually mm. has a connection to uh, Nosferatu. Um, that is which, interesting. Yeah. So my favourite Batman movie is Batman Returns. Um, oh, and obviously, yes. Christopher Walken's character is named Max Shrek, and he is named Max Shrek because of Tim Burton's love of Nosferatu. He was named for the actor. That is true. Small that, is world. A, that is an odd link. That is a coincidence on this episode. Yeah, yeah, it is. But that's <laughs> yeah. So that's that is my favorite Good uh, pick. Batman movie. And what, actually, I would go as far as to say it's one of my all-time favorite movies. Um, yeah, I think Batman '89 is a great movie and was my kind of cinematic introduction to Batman. <clears> although <throat> I was far too young to see it at the cinema, so the first Batman that I could actually see at the cinema was Batman Forever. Uh, so '89 and Returns, I you know I first saw on, on VHS. Uh, yeah, you know, a videotape for those youngsters that are listening uh, <laughs> and and hosting <laughs> and ho- oh, yeah. yeah, all right, thanks. Um, <laughs> but I just there's there's something about returns and the fact that it is like a huge gothic melodrama that I just absolutely love. I, mm. I know Danny Elfman talks about it and sometimes says that he feels, although it's one of his best scores, that actually it kind of swamps the film a little bit, um, but. I think it absolutely makes it. They kind of went even further with that idea of Gotham City and returns. The villains are even more over the top, and it's just, it's so, like I said, so melodramatic and so gothic. I just love absolutely everything about it. Everything. Everything about it. <laughs> well, um, it is excellent. It's one of my favourites as well. It's one that I haven't watched since I was a kid, to be honest. So I, I, I really should have gone back and rewatched it. Um, but I definitely do have like a lot Like you say, of... I love how over the top it is. And so, yeah. and so camp and just over the top. I mean, um, Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman is just insane. Uh, yeah. And Danny, uh, Danny DeVito's Penguin, what is going on there? It just, it shouldn't work. It shouldn't make sense, but it works so well. I want to see an in at the Spider-Verse, but instead of the Batman, it's just the two penguins, the one from, from Batman <laughs> Begins, the one from the Batman, like, having a conversation. <laughs> so... My favourite Batman film. I what think... is your favourite Batman film, Sam? <laughs> Thanks for asking, pal. Um, <laughs> my favourite Batman film... Well, I think the thing about Batman, and he's... he's I think with a lot of people, uh, he's, he's kind of... Him and, and Spider-Man are seen as the, the kind of... At least popular-wise, the kind of the two uh, big strongholds of, of the superhero genre. And unsurprisingly, yeah, they're two of my favourites. I think the same with Spider-Man can be said about Batman that... A lot of it is what you interpret of the character. There is so much, so many different versions of it. There's the, the detective, of you know, which goes back to, to, to you know his forties days. There's the you know the Justice League superhero kind of version, the one that you could say most closely would be, with um with with the Affleck version. You've got the campy sixties one. You've got all these different interpretations, and what you like uh, when it comes to films, I think a lot of it is what side of that you, you're most in love with. And I think I have a lot of adoration, a lot of adoration for the 60s version. I really do love the, the, the Adam West series more than the film, but I really do. And I have a bit of love for, for every single adaptation. Um, I even like Affleck, even though I don't like the films that Affleck's in at all, um, I, I really do like his interpretation of Batman. But for me, yeah, me too. I think, uh, you know, when Tim Burton was first announced as the director of, of, of Batman, it was all like, this is going to be so much darker. And then when the films come out, there are, 
you know, quite, you know, they're not particularly really dark, they're quite campy, which, you know, as, as Neil said, you know, a lot for a lot of people, that's, that's a positive thing. Because they're an interesting mix of, of a very Tim Burton style, a very interesting mix of of campy and and kind of macabre and and all that. But for me, I think the the highlight of the Batman universe is the is the Nolan trilogy, uh, which is not you know which is a lot of people saying, and they're still held up not only as kind of the milestone uh, to compare all other Batman films with, they're also often seen as the milestone for all other superhero films to, con- to to contend with. And whenever a great film comes out, it's compared to the to the Nolan trilogy. And I think what I look for the most in Batman is that detective side to a degree. And I love the the, the sense of criminal underworld. I love the the man in the shadows, which is one of the reasons why I love the Batman so much, as you if you heard our, our first episode on it. So for me, my favourite one is the first of the three, uh, Batman Begins, which, you know, it, it's comprised of an absolutely exceptional cast and of course that continues with the later films as well but the Christian Bale, Michael Caine, Liam Neeson, Gary Oldman, Cillian Murphy, Rutger Hauer, Morgan Freeman, Ken Watanabe, I'm not going to mention Katie Holmes, all of them <laughs> combined. Why would you mention her? <laughs> yeah exactly. Um, oh, well, I'm a bigger fan of the Maggie Gyllenhaal interpretation of the character. Um, I don't just hate women. Um, the, he does. He does. Yeah, well, I can't confirm that. <laughs> uh, but Batman Begins, I think that the the sense or the mixture of that early uh, angst that he has about the character, that the way that bats are treated in the film, I thought was really interesting. I think visually it's one of the best, but also combine that later on with the the, the kind of the the, not obviously detective to the same degree as the Batman, but the intrigue around Falcone and and the connections between different characters. And I think that it's a really interesting little puzzle of a film. Uh, and I think perhaps the reason why I love the Batman so much is because it has an awful lot of the best elements of Batman Begins amped up to ten. Mm. So yeah. for me, Batman Begins was the milestone for 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 Batman films. Um, but as I'm going to say in a second, that is no longer the truth. So. <laughs> I think we'll use that to to go straight into our our reviews. So we're going to start off with another non non spoiler section. Um, we're going to do a, a brief thoughts on on the Batman again. Uh, now we've had time. To, me and you've had time to rewatch it. Um, Neil's had time to three watch it, and we can yeah. then look. So we can say now what we we think after seeing it for a second time. But then we'll obviously swiftly get into a spoiler filled discussion afterwards. So. Um, Someone that hasn't been on here before, someone that hasn't given their thoughts, uh, can you please tell us, Neil Vag, what do you think of the Batman? I was thinking about this today, and I might actually upgrade my thoughts to flawless because wow. I'm really struggling to find anything that I don't like about it, having now seen it three times, which is mad. Um, wow. The first time I saw it, I loved it. The second time I saw it, I loved it more. The third time, I, I really cannot find anything. And I, I've like I've really tried to nitpick this film. <laughs> I have tried yeah. to find anything. <laughs> and there was even a specific moment that kind of confused, well, not confused me, but there was something the first time I watched it that I thought was really convenient. That on the third time, I realised there's actually a visual cue to make sure that the thing makes sense logically when it happens. And I thought, okay, no, fair play. I, I don't think I can knock this film at all. I think it is... Um, make a I mental note of what yeah, that like is, because I'm curious when we get to the spoiler <laughs> section about what it is you're talking about. 
uh, I think you're right in saying that it does take the best bits of Begins. I feel like I can see Begins in this mm. quite a lot. Um, but it just runs with it so far. And it's so close to what I've been reading in comics for 30 odd years that it just ticks every Batfan box for me. Yeah, yeah, I definitely see that. I think I, I've actually, I don't know if I said this on the podcast, I just talked about it to Lewis, but I think when you talk about the, the, the Batman Begins comparison again, I think uh, that it's a really interesting mixture of the first two Nolan films because it has the the underworld element. Of course, Falcone is, is the, the connector between the two as well. Uh, and it, I think visually looks a lot more like uh, Batman Begins than, than mm, it does yeah. um Dark Knight, especially because a lot of those, those kind of darker, those brown tones and such. Mm. Um, but I think as well, mixing that in with a character which, you know, I'm a Batman fan, but I'll admit a lot of the time there's a, the, the Riddler and, the, and Joker's actions could be swapped and it really wouldn't make much difference. And that's one, one of the problems I often have is that the interpretations of those often come close to each other. But I think yeah. there's a lot of comparisons you can make between Dano's um, Riddler. I don't know if it's a spoiler, he's Riddler. But uh, Dano's Riddler and, and Heath Ledger's Joker, a lot of their actions, maybe the motivations aren't all the same, but a lot of their actions are quite similar. So I think it's almost like a little bit like if you took Batman Begins and threw in you know, a bit of Heath Ledger, you know, that, that's a little bit like what, what this is, you know, it's got all of the best elements of Batman Begins and the best element of the Dark Knight, which is, of course, the villain. So I think that for me, uh, you know, not necessarily got that, that well, I, and also, actually, I guess you could say a little bit of the ending is an awful, is it could be compared to Rises, but I think it definitely does feature those elements from those those, those two best films. Curiously, uh, well, I'm just curious, so this this is your third favourite, you've described this as flawless, and it's your third favourite Batman film, which I think describes how good the Batman uh, films can be. Um, yeah. And you've just said the Batman is Batman Returns is one. Is is the 1989 Batman two, or is it something yes. else? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Okay. I think for the way I would try and rationalize it um, is like Keaton is my Batman. I grew up mm. on, I mean, I grew up watching reruns of, of Adam West as well, but Keaton was like the way I describe it is I must've, you know, when I was a kid, I used to watch reruns of, it, of, of Adam West and think that it was kind of cool. But the first time I saw 89, you know, when they're on the rooftop in that first scene and he swoops down in the background, that's the moment I became like a diehard Batman for life. So yeah, in my head, rationally, Keaton is my is my Batman and will always be my favourite. But there is there is no arguing that Pattinson has now just become the most comic accurate live action Batman that has ever been done so far. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, that that's an important thing. Just thinking back to my childhood when he said that, and, re- and I've just come to the awful realization that I guess technically Clooney is my Batman because, <laughs> like, I, I I grew up watching reruns of that film on repeat. Um, I must have seen that film like a hundred times, uh, Batman and Robin. Um, so um, uh, the fact that I continued with the character afterwards, I guess, is is uh, is impressive, really. But of course, I was uh, treated to the Batman the animated series as a child as well. Um, classic which is great yeah which is really good um, which I think you know uh, deserves to be held up with any version of the character absolutely yeah it, it, I mean when I put out my kind of ranking after seeing the Batman and being able to talk about it uh, the first thing that someone kind of responded to me on Twitter to say was well hang on a minute where, where would you put Mask of the Phantasm I, was, and I had to say look I'm only, I'm only talking about live action it's going to yeah. get complex if we put Mask of the Phantasm and stuff in there as well yeah 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 um, for sure, which is um, obviously, I, I, I guess 
we've already kind of walked into that territory when we talk about Lego Batman, which is so different to to the rest of the films we're going to talk about. Um, yeah, but I, I left Lego Batman off my Batman ranking list as well for the same reason. It's just completely. It's, it's not the same. I felt so sacrilegious when I did my Batman ranking and put Lego Batman above the Dark Knight. I was like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> the people would be very angry if, if anyone actually did see this. Like, yeah, um, it is a very strange thing to do. Like, I did. I re- was recently on the Letterbox podcast, and when I said to the hosts, uh, "I love the Lego Batman movie is my favorite Batman." The look on their face, they just looked perplexed. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a very confusing thing because it's in my letterboxed favorite four as well. Like, I really love the Lego Batman movie. And they said, like, why is the Lego Batman movie one of your favorite films? <laughs> the funny thing is, it, like, it's the kind of film where I would not be that surprised if you watched it as a child, but you must have been like, what, like 17, 18 when you first watched yeah, that film? I first watched it. I think I was like 20. <laughs> I think that's a testament to how good it is. Do you have it? Do you have? What's your thoughts yeah. on, on the Lego Batman film? Uh, Neil, have you seen it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I have. It's not one that I rewatch very often. I don't know why, because I also love it as well. It kind of it harkens back to kind of Adam West in that slightly kind of kitschy, campy yeah, yeah. way of portraying the character. But it's totally you can't deny Will Arnett is an amazing voice for the character, and they did a great version of Joker. They do the story. I mean, it does. Okay, it goes a bit crazy in the third act when they start throwing in kind of non-Batman stuff. But yeah. it is. It's a great version of Batman. Yeah. Well, um, one of my I was favorite just things about the Lego Batman film is that uh, Ray Fiennes is in it, so they had him in a recording booth, um, and he didn't voice uh, Lego Voldemort, who he plays. <laughs> that yeah, is got true. Someone yeah. else to voice Lego Voldemort, even wow. though they had Ray Fiennes. <laughs> I love the Lego Batman movie just because I, I got to see a, a Dalek on a, in, a, in a feature film for the first time since 1966 <laughs> exactly. or whatever. So I, I, I can take that. It's technically a Doctor Who film, so I'm going to consider it. Um, it was a shame that they lost the rights to, uh, well, Warner Brothers lost the rights to the Lego movies and it went over to Universal because yeah. they were developing a sequel. I know, yeah, I'm devastated going. about that. Devastated. So I am going to use this as a wonderful, um, a wonderful segue. So the... The Lego Batman movie, of course, uh, featured the the voice acting of Zoe Kravitz as, yes. as Catwoman. So mm. she, I don't know if anyone noticed, but she was also in in the one that just came out, uh, playing the same Who character. Did she play? Um, oh, she played Catwoman. They don't yeah, actually <laughs> they don't actually call her Catwoman at any point though. They just call her they, Selena. That's true. They just call her the cat. Yeah. And what did you think, uh, Neil, as someone, of course, that is super uh, more educated on the world of Batman comics than I, um, on, you said, the comic accuracy of, of Robert Pattinson's Batman? From a comic accuracy point, and just from, a, a you know, your personal preference, what did you think of Selina character in that kind of second lead role? She was brilliant. I thought she was, she yeah, she felt like, um, she felt like a mix of different kind of comic book versions to me. The, um, I mean, they pulled some actual, basically, like costumes of hers out from Batman year one. So the, the, the scene where she confronts Carmine Falcone, um, she is basically wearing an outfit she wears for much of the Batman year one comic book. So that was, that was like a pure comic book moment. Um, but I, uh, more recently, and you may have heard of it because it was kind of, it crossed over pop culture quite a lot. There was a kind of a planned wedding between Batman and Catwoman in the comics, which was written by Tom King. And famously it was all this, they're going to get married and then they didn't. Um, mm. But the, Tom King's characterization of the, of their relationship feels like a huge influence on this version of the character. And I, I like, I can, I can feel all different eras of Catwoman from the comics in her, in her version of the character. So I was really impressed with it. I thought it was great. 
Yeah, I, I think I, I definitely agree. I, I really liked it, and I'll get that when I kind of do and my other review. I think this has shown something um, that that maybe Hollywood has kind of shied away from, which is you. This is the most clear evidence that you don't have to abandon comic book actually to make a film which is beloved by non-comic book fans or is a film that's yeah. seen as more mature because it goes back to Absolutely. when X-Men came out in what, 2001 yeah. or whatever, and they completely abandoned the, the, the costumes they tried to kind of decampify it they tried to de-comic book it in an attempt to make a film which was seen as more adult yeah, of course that was one of the first big comic book films and then you look forward to you look towards things that have done particularly well with non-comic book audiences that have done really well. Something like Joker wasn't even inspired by any comic, really. It was just yeah, inspired by yeah. the, the essence of a character. And then even the other you know, the other one, the big ones you think that's done so well um, would have been uh, Logan, which, of course, is based on a comic book, but is based on a kind of Elseworlds, you know, non-canonical story, you know. So I think... And, and I'd say Nolan as well is, is not the most... You know, he's not looking for comic book actually with every every line or anything. Whereas this film has, you know, done a, something very, very impressive in that it has created a world that comic book fans are very happy to, to live in because it is so close to a lot of it. But yet it still manages to tick a lot of the boxes for people that aren't traditional comic book fans because it is so dark, because it is so, you know, because the performances are so good, because the, the plot is so well written. It, it managed to tick both boxes. And I feel like... You know, in in the past, not necessarily that that's been a difficult task to do. Something like Birds of Prey, for example, which is very key, would not have been loved by necessarily the average man in the street. Uh, I think that it's a real testament to how good the filmmaking is that they managed to prove. Of course, you can still feel comics in this in 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 these films, and and not lose any you know quality for doing it. Yeah, totally agree with you. It is. It's. It's funny how they, uh, so the X-Men thing has come up a few times in conversations, I think because of the reaction to this film, that, yeah, yeah you can. You you can do a comic book and, and do it justice, for want of a better term. Um, and people in the general audience will still buy into it as long as you make it accessible without losing the core of it. And this seems to have done it pitch perfect somehow. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think you think about things like, say, the things like X-Men, things like Blade, you know, gone are the days where you're embarrassed to be something based in the comic. You know, now is the time where you can, you know, you'll, you'll happily embrace it. And I think that that's good for for, for fans and for for, for non-comic book fans alike. Okay, so Lewis, um, let's just have your... Now you've re-watched the film. Um, have you got any change of the thoughts from, from your, the, the our first look podcast we did the other day? Or is it, is it still, you know, exactly the same? What, what do you... Give a little mini review of the Batman, will you please? Um, yeah, I haven't really changed my mind on much, really, uh, that I can talk about in a spoiler-free section. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I still think it's an exceptional film. I really do. It's it's it goes to show. I can't again. I can't remember if we spoke about this on the pod or if we were just talking about this, but it really goes to show how much how good a comic book film can be and how good a blockbuster can be, because uh, lately there's been this thing. You know, I don't want to say Marvel, but it, it is Marvel where a blockbuster doesn't have to be thoughtfully well-crafted. Uh, it can kind of just be... Not that Marvel films aren't thoughtfully well-crafted, but they're not kind of the same, if that makes sense. Like They're, they're very different in their approach uh, to making it. And I think this kind of just shows that you don't have to take that approach. You can take a very, very artistic 
and I, w- I don't know if I'd go so far as to say art house, but it's a lot more kind of, um, it's a lot more artistic than most big blockbusters. Like, you know, you watch this and then you watch The Fast and the Furious 9, or <laughs> yeah. you watch yeah. this yeah, and yeah, you yeah. watch Spider-Man Fantastic Home, Beasts. You, yeah, you watch this and then you watch Fantastic Beasts, and they're not even... Compar- comparable that they're, they're not in the same ballpark and that's mm. not to say that one is inherently better than the other um it's just they're so different and i think it really goes to show that when you put someone like matt reeves who clearly adores the source material and clearly knows the source material when you put someone like him in charge of a film and you just let him do what he wants to do um it just it works i mean i'm still gobsmacked that this is rated 15 in the uk i cannot believe that they released this, a Batman film with a 15 rating. Batman is the most popular superhero um, behind Spy- only Spider-Man. Um, kids love Batman, and they released a, a Batman film cutting out a huge portion of their potential audience. You know, it's a Batman film. Families are going to go and want to watch a Batman film, and they can't, and they yeah. know that, and they've done it anyway because they, they cared more about the Matt Reeves' vision uh, to take this dark uh, approach to the character. And it's not because of the violence, which I find even more interesting. Like Snyder's Batman in the ultimate cut of BVS is rated R because of the violence. You see a lot of blood, you see a lot of violence. You don't see that in this. It's the um, kind of a bit like Nosferatu in that it's, it's very atmospheric. It's it's terror in that it's very, it feels, it's anxiety inducing. The score, everything that's happening on screen you, the horror and the, the the terror of particularly the Riddler's actions is very implied. You don't see it, yeah. but it's implied and it's in the atmosphere and it's in the vibe of the film as a whole. Um, and I think it's executed very well done. Um, mm. The only thing that I would say I've changed my mind on and I've gone slightly um, in a different way is the cinematography. There were a few times um, where I, when I rewatched it where I thought the cinematography is a bit ostentatious for my liking like it it kind of felt a bit unnecessary at a few times i thought this is very kind of over the top a little bit if that makes sense i just wish they showed a little bit of restraint with the cinematography um i I wasn't a huge fan upon second rewatch of the amount of um what's the word i'm thinking of it's almost like micro photography where you've got, I can't remember the, the word when it's used in film, but you've got a, you know, one tiny speck of blood on the floor and that's what's in focus and everything else yeah. is out of focus. Yeah. I thought that's that's kind of a bit much for me. I wasn't a huge fan of that upon secondary watch. But in general, my thoughts on the cinematography are still the same. It's still unbelievable cinematography. And um, I said it last time and I'll say it again. I, I really think that Greg Frazier is... Uh, one of the best working cinematographers right now, and I, yeah, I'd put him up there with Deakins right now as well. I think he yeah. is yeah, unbelievable. Agreed. I mean, you've got Dune, the Batman. He's done the Mandalorian as well. He did Rogue One. He is unbelievable um, at doing cinematography, at, at capturing an image, at using shadows and light. And you, when you look at Batman and Dune next to one another, you wouldn't even guess that they're by the same cinematographer. So it's not even yeah. like he has a, a trademark style that he just copies and pastes onto different films he approaches every film differently and it works flawlessly um and i still love the batman very very much yeah yeah i mean interesting that you mentioned june because i'm going to use that thing because to go into it because a bit like what you echoed uh what you said at the beginning i'm going to echo a bit what you said about uh blockbusters and such is that 
all the abuse that Warner Brothers got, especially in the wake of the Snyderverse fiasco and how they've treated um, the Justice League, the DCEU and such. Warner Brothers was a bit of a dirty word even like a year ago. But they've come out with Dune and the Batman as back-to-back blockbusters. And they're both proof of what you can do if you trust your directors when they're creating IP work. You know, you don't have to, to, you know, in the way that they did to almost every single one of their directors when they've been doing the DCU projects is they've been doing, you know, direction by committee and they've been making, no, you can't do this. No, we want to have this person. No, we want to do this. It seems that from all channels, they completely let Denis do what he wanted with June. I don't want to let this turn into a June review again, but he created one of the, 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 he managed to, to adapt something that was seen as unadaptable. And he managed to, because he wasn't being forced to include this or do that or make it in one film, because they let him, you know, have his bag of tricks and they let him use one of the greatest working cinematographers, as you previously mentioned in Greg Frazier, uh, he ended up coming out with, with one of the films, which are, 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 you know, one of the best films of the year and has been recognized by the, an awful number of awards for it, you know, for that. And they've done the same here. They, it seems like they let Matt Reeves do what he wanted. Uh, he's created a world, a world that didn't have to be kind of hamstrung by connections to other superhero works, much like Joker was had the same situation. They didn't. He doesn't have to to add in extra Justice League plot. He was allowed to do what he wanted. He could adapt what he wanted to, and they just trusted their directors to do what the best they could. And they gave him once again one of the best working uh, cinematographers. Uh, and he and and Matt Reeves has, has woven. An absolute masterpiece. A master masterclass. He's woven an absolute masterpiece. It's feels so much more directed than than a lot of the the, the, the Batman uh, outings we've had in recent years, and it creates such a wonderful, interesting, true detective story that I just think that we have been missing from the Batman uh, from a, a live action version for you know since the the, the version in the forties. Uh, I think the way that the, the of course, Seven and Ver- uh, and uh, Zodiac are going to be the comparisons, but the way that the, the bodies keep dropping as we keep learning more clues is just done so excellently. You know, the way that it connects the the actions, the targeted violence with this, these, this it, the detective plot that runs throughout is going to make sure that, as I said last time, no action fan or no fan of that noir work is ever going to be bored because you've always got something around the corner. Uh, I just think that it's just a showing of just how good these superhero films can be with the right backing, with the right emphasis, with the right you know directors and auteurs and, and cinematographers. I just really hope that the DC don't just say Matt Reeves make another two Batman films. I hope they take lessons and allow... I'd love to see... Uh, other characters done like this i don't think they should ban dcu i think the black adam looks very interesting but i'd like to see a version of superman perhaps a a a kind of maybe a you know the the, i've got the name of it um you might remember neil the superman when he is he's dying he gets super powerful i can't his name it's like Uh, the um yeah ah i know i know exactly what you're talking about Um, yes (laughs) and i can picture it right now Yes, that version. Is it Tom, uh, is it Tom King? I can't remember. What, whatever version of it is that that is. Uh, if you you I'm know, I'd to love Google to it, s- which makes me ashamed. <laughs> yeah, me too. Um, but I'm sure there are very interesting Superman stories that could get told. Um, if you if you really All Star Superman. All Star Superman. Who wrote it? It was. Uh, it wasn't Tom King. 
No, it wasn't. It was. Well, I can find the actual cover artwork for it. Um, this conversation has gone so far over my head as someone who doesn't read comics. It was Grant Morrison. Of course it was Grant Morrison. Of yeah. course it was Grant Morrison. Um, yes, so there was a Brilliant film story. Yeah. which I don't believe would, was very good. That would be um, absolutely amazing on film. Yes, and I think that, that trusting... Uh, and also, you know, I'd love to see Marvel say, you know, let's make a couple films that don't have to relate to the MCU. Um, but yeah, I think that this is an example of what they can be doing with these, this kind of thing. Uh, and just on the film itself, you know, I think that the, the performance is absolutely wonderful, as, you, as we talked about last time. Uh, Colin Farrell's makeup is just unbelievable. Uh, the, the cinematography is great for it. The, the nightclub scenes, the production design, it's all just top, top notch. Uh, and I'm not going to rehash everything I said last time. But one thing I'll say when I rewatched it, actually, it was quite contrasting to what you said, Lewis, is that I felt like I knew the plot enough i felt like there wasn't anything that i needed to 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 have answered the only thing that i was going in there to answer was some people had said criticisms and i couldn't confidently say i disagreed i went in with that idea a lot a lot of things that jl for example who didn't love the film so much had issues with that i came in thinking of that and a lot of things i, I didn't disagree I, I didn't agree with i didn't think that you know these stories were too easy these clues were too easy to work out i didn't think it was too simple of a story but I paid attention. That's one thing. I consciously paid attention more to the sights and sounds of it. I really did pay attention to the cinematography. I really paid attention to the score. And I actually do disagree with you. I know it's what you mean with that, that microphotography or whatever the technical term is. I don't necessarily agree at all. I think it can't, it looks really good and I think it really works for the way that we visualise how Batman, the, the Batman is thinking himself. I think that the score is a lot better than I even first gave it credit. I thought it was great. But then it was talked about, okay, it's not some of his best work. It's not. Uh, it's not the, the the best thing that uh, what's his name, Michael uh, Michael Giacchino. Yeah, Giacchino has ever done. Um, you know, some people saying that the theme wasn't very good. I came back in, focused on the score, and I think the score is absolutely wonderful. I completely disagree with that criticism. I just think of the way that the score and it, how also. Just want to give another bit more credit. I, the way they use something in uh, in the way in in that oh, yeah. film is so wonderful because it really does have a very Nirvana feel to the whole film. Um, and I think I have heard Rob Pattinson say that Kurt Cobain was his biggest inspiration. I can very much see that. Uh, and I think it's, it's really well used throughout the film, uh, the two or three times it's used in that film. Uh, but yeah, it's, just, it's, it's all very good. Um, and let's talk about spoilers, shall we? So approaching the hour mark. Uh, so, you know, I have to remember to add that in the description. But if you haven't uh, heard any, if you haven't watched the Batman yet, we urge you strongly to go watch it because it's going to be the only thing in the cinema for the next month because uh, that's the same thing that happened with Spider-Man No Way Home. They just filled the cinemas with it. Um, so don't listen on if you haven't uh, watched the Batman yet. We all very strongly recommend it. Um, so now you've been warned. Okay, one, two, three, spoilers, boom. Um, Batman loses, uh, the Joker's in it. Boom. That was <laughs> okay, so um, let's start off. Uh, what was the the, the the put a pin in it spoiler conversation that you two were going to discussing earlier, Lewis and Neil? Oh, my nit. So my nitpick. Um, I, um, this is so minute. So it is really a non-entity of a thing. But the first yeah, time I, I watched like it, all of our issues are going to be very minute. <laughs> when uh, when Selena Kyle goes back to the iceberg lounge and goes to confront um carmine and it all comes out that you know she calls him dad and she pulls the gun out i remember thinking well hang on a minute there was an establishing shot that the gun had been knocked out of her hand by batman because he you know he, he literally punched it out of her hand and there was like an establishing shot of it on the floor 
just there was just a random shot of it on the floor and then suddenly she pulled it out of her bag and so that first time I thought oh when did she get the gun and I didn't think about it the second time I saw it but then when I watched it the third time when she uh she does there's the shot where she pushes um the the cop off the side of the 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 tower and it cuts to a wider shot as uh, Batman and Gordon go to grab him. And actually, as she spins around in her like cat-like motion, you actually do see her grab the gun and pick it back up again. And I was like, "Well, that's it. That's my oh, that's my I nitpick. My nitpick has been undone. It's the, it's like <laughs> it's barely even like five frames. It's the quickest shot. But in the shot as she spins around, in the mix of all that action, you do see her swipe and pick up the gun. Like, yeah, oh, there we go. Oh. I can't argue with it. It's there. There is those little touches, I think, that we, especially in a rewatch, where you think, oh, like a lot of the the stuff to do with um, like the clues and stuff, I didn't necessarily pick up, or there are little things I didn't see, and then rewatching it, it's, it's very, uh, you know, it's very detailed. It's, it's all very involved, and I didn't really think of it the first time, and and even the thing like I didn't realize the the whole drive thing, like that, you know, the use he's looking for a, a, a drive. That's why he goes in the car. He looks for a USB. I didn't even think, oh, he's looking for a USB drive. You know, it's like loads. Of, it's all very, um, it's all very it's detailed. Well yeah, and there's and especially I think with the the second murder as well. I think there's loads of little things that I hadn't necessarily noticed, but I think that it's. It's all very good. I'll tell you one of the things that I really wanted to talk about on the review that I couldn't talk about the first time because there wasn't a spoiler warning. One of my favourite things about this film is that he loses, and he loses really badly, and that's one of my favourite things. There is no, like, okay, perhaps he's shown a bit Messiah-like at the end. Sure, he does have a bit of redemption, but ultimately, the the making of Batman is the fact that this is someone that's still very naive. He still is learning the craft, and he completely and utterly fails and i think that does more character development than any line of dialogue any relationship he have will will do that he absolutely loses here he's responsible for the deaths of how many people in gotham the entire you know the 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 worst case scenario happens the entire place gets flooded and how you know a ridiculous amount of people are going to die and he saves a small number he saves Bellarial. But ultimately, you know, that is going to do so much. For, this is a real coming of age. I think that it would have not have worked without that moment. So, well, especially when, I, when mm, that happened yeah. the first time in cinema, I was thinking, thank God, you know, that's such an, that's so, I'm so happy that they did that rather than having it get close to being bad and then he saves the day. Like, he definitely fucked up. And that for me, I thought, great move. Agreed. It is, it's, and I think that's partly down to the year two setting as well. I, I thought it was a great idea that they didn't retread the origin and see him suiting up for the first time. I thought it was it was really nice to you know acknowledge that that has obviously been a thing. You mm-hmm. know, the death of his parents is still important, but it's not something that we have to see here. They're still an important factor in his life and you know where he is emotionally. But I think that year two setting was a perfect call by Reeves and really really makes it because it's a it's an interesting time to see him because he's. He's not just making mistakes. Like, you know, you still get that moment where he, you know, he skydives basically off the top of GCPD and ends up completely flubbing the landing and hurting himself. But it's not constantly about that. It's, you know, he has some success. He is a great detective. But at the same time, emotionally and where he is, he's not quite, you know, he's completely given up on Bruce Wayne because he just wants to be Batman. And that makes for a really interesting version of the character that we've not seen before. Yeah, I think it's an interesting mix there. If he was, if this was an origin story, and I'm happy that it isn't, 
if this is an origin story, it would though that that big loss would be seen as as naivety it would be seen as you know he would still feel like he was learning but the point is that he is so confident he thinks that he's the the shit you know he thinks he's <laughs> unstoppable and he wouldn't have that if he's an origin because he's you know he's been doing this for however long years who as you say you know that is going to be the thing that make, he this is going to be so much more damaging to his psyche and his realization of his his purpose as the batman than anything else could be because he he already is feels established he already feels like he can do anything so I think that 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 mixed so well with the fact that it was set you know you later it's a little bit to say it's quite Spider Man like they are aware that people are just tired of seeing this done again that people are sort of tired yeah. of seeing the, the the origin which they'd already done with Batman vs Superman which just kind of I think was too much for the problem that, that Batman just kind of came out of nowhere this time they did it again. Uh, and I thought it worked a little bit better because you still got little glimpses here and there. Of course, they talk about Thomas Wayne getting killed quite a lot, but they don't touch on it. Much like how in Spider-Man Homecoming or in Civil War, they don't actually show him getting his powers being bit Uncle Ben, but they mention it here and there. Um, I guess even though they are ultimately so, so different uh, and completely different ends of the superhero spectrum and yet both excellent, the only comparison I will make to Spider-Man No Way Home is that they both feel like they've done an amazing amount of emotional work for the character, which not, perhaps has been neglected in the past. Especially, I think, with the last iteration of Batman, it did lack a lot of that emotional depth. It did lack a lot of that um, character development. With Spider-Man, Homecoming and Far From Home failed to address key parts of his character. And I feel like both of these films, even though one is a third part of a very differently toned superhero trilogy, this one's the first standalone film, both of them were big for their titular superheroes and that they've finally given them important character development. Yeah, is there any particular? Agree. Yeah, is there any particular uh, spoilery thoughts you had, Lewis? Yeah, just to counter off what you said, uh, I also like the fact that he lost. I, I don't quite think it was as as devastating a loss as you uh, make it out to be. I think as much as he did lose, and the plan that the Riddler had was successfully executed, um, at the end of the film, Batman is still very much the hero of Gotham. He, you know, on the news they're praising him as the hero. He saved hundreds of lives. Um, the Messiah shot, the, the the shot of him with the flare is very Messiah-esque. Uh, and I like the fact that uh, the, that shot of the flare, it's one of the best film, one of the best shots in the film. And um, I love that sequence where the Riddler goon says, I am vengeance. Uh, mm. And Batman realizes that's, that's not the, that's not the right mindset for me to have. Yeah. If the villain yeah. has it as well. Um, yeah. And that's when he flips. And I love that sequence and I love yeah. the messaging behind that. Um, but I, I don't think it's a devastating loss. I think it's a very soft loss um, because he's still praised as the hero and he saves hundreds of lives. Um, yeah. So I, I think that's a little bit of a, a difference the, that we have. The, the thing is, though, I think is that in universe, they don't know the extent of the situation with the, with the Riddler. They don't know that he was so basically at fault for it all the viewer knows but how was he at fault for it all because he just he, didn't stop it he wasn't at fault for it he just failed to stop it but i feel like all of the riddler's plans eventually involved him getting involved i think of batman like obviously he brought carmine into the light so he he, he ticks that box and i think a lot of the stuff that he does with gill as well it's almost like he's kind of teasing along the plan that he does exactly what the riddler wants to do i think that well actually i'll talk about it in a second actually with my talk about the riddler i understand what you mean I think that's a good showing of him failing and then the yeah. kind of the little respite at the end is that like, boom, he clicks. He's a completely different type of hero after that and he realises yeah, his place he and is. that's very well shown without him actually saying any lines that imply that. 
Yeah, and the amount of... Um, I was so shocked when we watched this with how little Bruce Wayne is in this. Um, you know, Obviously, Batman is Bruce Wayne, but um, there is so little scenes... Wait a second, Wayne... Batman! <laughs> <laughs> oh, fuck, that makes so Spoilers. much more sense Big now. spoiler. Shit! <laughs> Biggest spoiler of the episode. Wow, The um... Dark Knight Rises is really confusing. <laughs> But yeah, um, there are so few scenes where he is Bruce Wayne. There are very few scenes where he's not even where he's even not in the bat suit. He's in the bat suit for most of his scenes, and his performance is just his eyes, basically. And it's an unbelievable performance that Robert Pattinson delivers. And it, it's it's really amazing how he manages to portray those emotions and those changes that we were just talking about when you know the Riddler guy says, "I'm vengeance." You can see the thoughts going through his head just through Robert Pattinson's eyes. And that's amazing. Um, and I was shocked with how that I think off the top of my head, there are only two scenes where Bruce Wayne is being Bruce Wayne, because for most of the scenes, even when he doesn't have his mask on, he's only around Alfred who obviously knows he's Batman. So he's still doing vigilante stuff. There's only the scene at the mayor's funeral and the scene where, um, he's talking to the police after Alfred is bombed, uh, where he is Bruce Wayne the billionaire, Bruce Wayne the man. Every other time he's Bruce Wayne. Oh, uh, when he also uh, also when he talks to uh, Carmine as well. So that's three. Oh, that. Well, oh, that's true. Yeah, there are three. Um, yeah, so he's still he's he's Bruce Wayne the billionaire. Very rarely in this, and even when he is, he's not being Bruce Wayne. He's this recl- the Bruce Wayne that we know from the other live action films. This suave, except not eccentric, but this suave billionaire who you know, has his life sorted out, like compare this to Bruce Wayne in the Dark Knight of getting out of a helicopter with some girls on either side of him. It's it's a completely different interpretation of the character. And I love that interpretation uh, that Pattinson has taken. And I think it's really, really interesting. What you say there, I think really a kind of consequence of how the character has been adapted previously by Hollywood, because... Mm. The, this version, and it, again, it does kind of go back to the year two setting and him being so like razor sharp focused on the mission. But that is so much more of what the character is like in comic books, particularly at this point in his career and for the next kind of few years after that. Oh, the 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 Nolan version and that kind of Playboy version is more of a Hollywood invention than than one from the comic books. Uh, oh, I mean, Adam West's version was somewhat of a playboy. Michael Keaton's version is maybe less playboyish, but does still, you know, he has the big house party. He still is a yeah. kind of a factor. And then you go to like the Clooney version that was sort of a celebrity. And it is much yeah. more about that kind of classic Hollywood idea of you have the alter ego and that's where you will come into the film and the story. And you're excited for that moment when the bat signal is going to shine and you know they're going to suit up. Whereas if you go to most comic books, even at kind of where he is in his career, where they're writing the main Batman stories now, Bruce Wayne is still much more of a, he, he's, it, he doesn't ignore Bruce Wayne, but Bruce Wayne is still a necessity rather than someone who he likes to be. Batman is really who he, who he is and who he, who he is most of the time. So that's, that's another way that I think this version is much more accurate to what's in, what's in comics but done well enough that it can make sense and still works for an audience who don't know that. Yeah, I think the... Yeah, definitely. I 
I, I had no idea about that. Like I say, I've never read uh, any of the comics, so that's really interesting that that's something that's taken more from the comics. Um, and I, I, I thought it was a very uh, interesting decision that Matt Reeves took, uh, which I suppose it is because he chose to adapt the comics so faithfully, but um, I think it, it's, it's a very interesting approach to take um, to just throw us straight in. Like the Batman, uh, it, he's the Batman throughout. <laughs> Bruce Wayne doesn't really show up, and I think that's really... Yeah. Yeah, and I can't wait to see where the Batman goes from this. I think, especially you say about he's not the the, the Bruce Wayne's not really in this. It, it's funny because he is a man, he is Bruce Wayne, and that is him. But he, when he's playing Bruce, when he's Bruce Wayne, like when he's on a Carmine, or any time, really, the three times he's Bruce Wayne. It, it honestly feels like it's Batman doing an impression of Bruce Wayne. That is actually the guy, but it never feels like yeah. him, especially in that conversation with Carmine. It's like he is trying to do an impression of the person that he actually used to be, which is quite <laughs> yeah. a crazy concept. Yeah. And I particularly think as well in the scene where he's ringing up the maid to protect Alfred, and he's he's dressed in the Batsuit, he's in the Batmobile, and he's ringing up the his house to get that to tell the maid like something very bad is about to happen and his demeanor changed ever so slightly in those scenes and you could tell that it wasn't batman speaking yeah. but it was batman if that makes like you can tell it was batman thinking i can't be batman right now because the maid i'm talking to doesn't know i'm batman yeah uh, and i think I, I definitely agree it's it was really interesting and again more praise of pattinson pattinson pulled that off yeah fantastically yeah i mean that was about to say with pattinson it's that thing whenever someone plays someone else playing someone else, like when Helena Bonacarta plays Hermione playing her in, in Harry Potter. Yeah. <laughs> um, it it's such it's so exceptional what, what Pattinson does in that scene when he's talking to Carmine, you you can see him pretending to be naive, you can see him, and it's just an, it requires such a just fundamentally excellent performance. And it just make and I know it's the thing we've said before, I know it's the thing that a lot of people have said before. Like, look back in time. Gone are the days of better love stories than Twilight and such. Two of the best actors in the world are Kristen Stewart <laughs> yes. and Robert Pattinson. We've just seen Kristen Stewart yeah. put in the best performance of the year. We've seen Robert Pattinson put in one of the best performances from any superhero actor in a, a long time, in my opinion. I think he's absolutely exceptional here. Um, yeah. And he's definitely a version of the character that requires him to be. And I don't doubt that Pattinson can do the, the, the billionaire women on his his shoulder stuff i think he'd oh, yeah. be great at that i'm thinking he'd be fine at that but him doing the the kurt cobain version that you say <laughs> is closer to the the comics but maybe hasn't been seen in on screen for before yeah it's just it's a masterstroke from from pattinson but also from reeves so you know as the the comic book expert and we've been talking about comic book accuracy throughout uh, the day uh, I want to ask you a bit about this adaptation of The Riddler, which is one okay. thing we haven't really been able to talk about um, until now because of, obviously, the bad guy having a lot of the spoilery connotations around it. So a lot of people uh, were in outcry when the suit was first announced. Um, I personally thought it looked quite cool. Uh, that's my own thoughts. Um, so, but then, obviously, this came out, and I haven't heard the same issues about uh, The Riddler I'm mildly versed in Batman comics, but I'm no expert. Um, when it comes to comic book accuracy, what would you you say about this adaptation, of the Riddler? Is this would you say this is more like, is this more like Riddler than Jim Carrey's version is? <laughs> it's it's so <laughs> difficult because I feel like the Riddler is one of those characters that wasn't 
maybe a massive deal in comics until you had Frank Gorshin playing him in the in the 66 show. And that kind of live action portrayal ended up influencing the comic book version more than the other way around. So uh, particularly yeah. costume wise. And that is obviously what Jim Carrey was kind of doing was almost a riff on that 66 TV version. Yeah. Um, so I, yeah, I think the first time I saw the costume for, for this version, I thought, okay, this is interesting. This is a departure, but actually I think even though you kind of hype him up in that sort of Zodiac killer jigsaw type way that he's portrayed in the film, I think you can still, you can still feel who the character is from the comics underneath. Um, there's still that slight sense of whimsy there that there's enough that although it was a new interpretation, I still felt like I was seeing a character that I've, I've known for years. So mm-hmm. I think it works. Yeah, I think it did the best in, I guess I think it did the best version of, of what I said earlier, which is sometimes when people get confused about using the Riddler and Joker, I think yeah. taking, yeah, this they is, are very similar in that respect. I think this is a, even though, you know, maybe some of the scenes towards the end in the, the, in Arkham Asylum, you know, you could perhaps swap them there. Um, I think the, the, the way that he presents himself uh, throughout the film is a bit more unique than, than you could have yeah, gone. I think definitely. there is a, a, a worry that you could go to Jokery. Um, Lewis, talk to me about Paul Dano's performance. Paul Dano's performance. Uh, Paul Dano is a, an incredible actor, obviously. Probably his most acclaimed performance, best performance in There Will Be Blood. Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's There Will Be Blood, which you're or, uh, or Love and Mercy. I haven't seen that, actually. That's the Beach Boys, where I picked. He was very heavily praised for. I haven't seen that, but uh, I have heard good things. Uh, but yeah, in this, he doesn't really get much to do. He's kind of the... Uh, villain in the shadows uh, especially with him wearing a mask he doesn't really have much to do um, but what he does do he does very well uh, so he only has very little but he uses that little and does it very well um, the sequences where he's kind of live streaming he do, he gives a very convincing performance but again it's not really very much to go off the only scene where he gets some kind of meaty acting to do is the uh, interrogation scene with Batman towards the end um, and he, he knocks that out of the park for me, I think he's fantastic, he's a brilliant actor um, and this interpretation of the Riddler is a very it's a lot less um, con- you know there, there are a lot, I, I've seen a lot of interpretations of the Riddler, I've played a few games and, and obviously Jim Carrey's version where he's constantly speaking in riddles, like you know every other sentence is a riddle he doesn't just tell you something or talk to you. Every sentence is a riddle. And this was a lot more gritty. And this, this riddle was a lot more gritty. And uh, Dano's performance did it. Uh, and and uh, what's what I'm thinking of? Portrayed that very convincingly mm-hmm. and portrayed this kind of disturbed young man um, uh, very well. And, and one thing that I thought was very good about the Riddler, and this isn't necessarily about Dano's performance, just about Matt Reeves' decision and the costume designer and the hair and makeup people. Yeah is um, uh, I, I spoke to a few people who said they were a bit disappointed that the Riddler just looked like Paul Dano. Like they hid his identity all throughout the, well, not his identity, they hid his face all throughout the marketing. They hid his face uh, throughout the entire film. So when his face is revealed, the fact that he just looks like Paul Dano is a bit disappointing. <laughs> I do disagree with that. At first, I kind of thought, fair enough, you know, I kind of get you. But in hindsight, I definitely massively disagree with that. I think, you know, from a narrative perspective, 
I think it's great that the guy who's doing yeah. all of this is just a normal guy. And also, yeah. on a serious uh, perspective, a serious uh, perspective on the sideline the fact that every villain usually is you know horribly disfigured uh is something very bad in films and in cinema that a lot of people i know there's a specific charity at the name of which i've forgotten um which is kind of campaigning to stop having villains with uh disfigurements because you know having a villain with burns having a villain with one arm having a villain with a hunchback it's it's negative connotations of those things and it's it's very tired and it's overdone uh you know every villain has to have scars or uh you know some kind of disfigurement and the fact that the the riddler is just a normal looking guy you know he he could you could pass him on the street he doesn't look any different than a just your average joe i think that's a, a good decision uh from kind of the real world perspective of not making him this horribly disfigured person um, but also narratively, I think it's a great decision to have him just be this normal guy. Anyone could have done this. Uh, there are dangerous mm. people and they're just normal mm. people. Uh, so, I think it's far more compelling than having him be this kind of cartoonishly comic booky uh, villain, uh, you know, comparing it to, to Jim Carrey's with a, a golden riddler, uh, golden question mark staff and a tight green lycra jumpsuit with bright yeah. orange hair. It's yeah. a, it, it feels a lot more real and narratively not only does it fit with the world uh, that Matt Reeves has created but also I think it fits with the story and yeah. the, the the real world that we're in that we're in now uh, I think it works a lot better and I'm a massive fan of that yeah yeah finally a um a villain to uh for to represent us redditors <laughs> I uh, definitely need more to come from him as well there will undoubtedly be more to come from him Yes, yeah, yes, they definitely. I hope so, definitely. He's fantastic. Yeah, I definitely open-ended. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. I, I, I absolutely loved it. I think that the scene that he has in the asylum with, um, with, with Rob Pattinson is just exceptional. I think that for me, that was the highlight of the entire film. I, I really love that scene, um, and I just, I just think it's terrifying. And it might start with a little bit of, of that madness with with the Bruce Wayne stuff, which I absolutely like. When he says Bruce Wayne, Bruce Wayne, it got me on the second time. Like I knew what happened, but I still was like, "Wait a second. Uh, but I knew he didn't. Yeah. But like, I it was so. I was like, "Oh my god!" And my mate that was sat next to me was absolutely like, "He was like, what? What's going on?" Yeah. I was like, "Wait a sec." Um, <laughs> You can guess which friend of mine that was from that impression, Lewis. Um, yeah, okay. Was it was it Lee? Shout out Lee. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so the What's performance is absolutely exceptional. Yeah. Um, just yeah, just that that one scene. I thought it was absolutely exceptional. I thought that the way that the, the clues are done. I think it's just it's fascinating. There is so like this is yeah. the best way that we could have done with the Riddler, like to to interpret it is, instead of like. Of course, I love the 60s version. I think it's probably the best villain in the 60s version uh, is the Riddler. But actually, no, sorry. Second, I can't insult Cesar Romero, sorry. But <laughs> he's up there. He's great in the 60s version. Um, this is the best way to do a gritty version, you know, having his like yeah. riddles rather than just being, you know, little you know, cheesier sides to uh, bank robberies, whatever, to have this as an actual, his actual riddles with, you know, bodies dropping. I think that was an exceptional way to play it. And I think that that having the the every man that it could just be anyone that you say from Dano, I thought it was an act of genius. I think that Dano is obviously someone that really respects the source material. You hear him talk so much about Batman; he's a massive Batman nerd. Yeah. Um, and I think that was the perfect person to play this was a massive Batman nerd. Um, yeah. yeah, I thought it was exceptional. 
Yeah, and there are a few other things. Sorry, you go. I was going to say, I was going to use this to transition into... Oh, right. So do you want to say something about the Riddler? Yeah, quickly finish off with the Riddler then. Um, Yeah, the the scenes, uh, the opening scene of the Riddler watching the mayor and the opening kill scene, I want to talk about that briefly. Um, Because I saw, I I think it was JL actually, who said it was a bit weird... Like he, the fact that he just screamed and ran towards him, it was a bit of a weird way to kill someone. Uh, and I really disagree. I think that opening kill scene is fan- flawless and fantastic. Oh, yeah, I really flawless. do. The opening, yeah. the opening shot of the Riddler is terrifying. It's it's horrific. It's awful in the best way possible. You know, the mayor steps out of frame. You know, the first time you watch it, you just see shadows. You don't see anything. The second time you watch it, you can kind of notice the silhouette because you know it's there. And then I can't remember what it is. I think it's the TV lights up or something and you see him and his eyes are wide and it's just an unbelievable shot. And I remember the first time we watched it at the screening, there were audible gasps as people thought, the Riddler's there. It's about to go down. And then the fact that he screams as he hits him with the the carpet tool, I think that's amazing. And and again, this fact that he's just a normal guy, he's not really meticulous with his killing technique. Um, he's kind of rabid and he goes at him like a dog. He just runs, screams and hits him as much as he can until he's dead. And the meticulousness comes afterwards, uh, Mm. you know, with that. And with the second kill, the meticulousness comes beforehand with the planning of the the rat trap. Or is that the third kill? I think that's... Well, you know, the kill with the rat trap, the the planning comes beforehand. The actual taking that we don't see that one but the actual taking i assume was very similar and same with the neck bomb the planning was beforehand and afterwards the taking was just rabid he just ran you know quickly rams this man in the car um with it Mm. you know on the neck and i think it's so well done and that opening kill scene is probably the best scene in the film for me um it's just absolutely exceptional and again going back to greg davis um the idea not greg Greg, Greg Davis, that's the comedian. Greg Fraser. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, Greg Fraser in this film, the way that he uses the shadows and the light to hide things in the shadows that you don't see. You know, the Batman, when we first see him, he's hiding in the shadows. He creeps forward. Riddler in the opening scene is hiding in the shadows. Um, and then the Batmobile, uh, we, when we first see that, it's hiding in the background of a scene and you don't know it's there um, until it lights up. Or if you're watching it on a second time, you can kind of see the silhouette in the background. So the way that shadows are used in this film shows you obviously a theme with Batman in general, but I think it's emphasized in this film a lot more as well. It, it's so well done. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, I will actually add a bit more, actually. Um, first thing you say about the opening scene, uh, I think it's great how they play with the audience uh, perspective, perception and the audience, you know, what they know, because everyone, always, surely everybody thinks that's Bruce Wayne when they first see the kid go through the, through the window, right? You know, when you see the kid playing yeah, around. Yeah, I did think that. And, you know, Which you I see think him. is also a nice nod to 89, because obviously you get the family that are attacked in the opening scene of Batman 89, that mm-hmm. again, you could presume oh, are yes. the Wayne family. So I feel like it's also a nod to Tim Burton as well. Yeah, yeah, actually, yeah, yeah definitely. I hadn't thought of that, that's true. Yeah, that's a, that's a, good, that's a good comparison, yeah. So I think also, really... actually, sorry, uh, mm-hmm. when, the, when the Riddler is looking at the kid through the window, you also get to see two nuns walk down the street, which could in theory be a nod to the Batman 66 movie when Adam West is running around the pier with a bomb and tries not to blow up the nuns. 
Actually, very much could be, actually. It's impressive of Batman. (laughs) Yeah. This film is very bat literate, so I wouldn't be surprised at all if those were deliberate. Um, Well, there's actually, there's one other, which I think may be me really reaching, but one of the, one aspect of of Batman 66, that whole Adam West franchise, is the fact that everything is, you know, it's like cardboard sets made on such cheap budgets and stuff, and everything is just called Gotham something or other. It'd be like, you know, Gotham bookstore, Gotham clothes store. Mm-hmm. And when they when they follow Penguin, uh, Penguin when um you know when uh, I was going to call him Commissioner Gordon, Lieutenant Gordon and Batman follow Penguin out to his uh to you know to where they get they start the Batmobile chase, that that plant where they're doing the drugs drop is actually just called Gotham Recycling. It's just right. a huge like cheap <laughs> sign hanging on the front of the building that just says Gotham Recycling. I was like, is that a nod to sixty six as well? Because that's exactly oh, how they would do it in sixty six. I don't think this was an odd what I'm going to say, but when he grapples downwards and runs down a building afterwards, I was like, oh, you had really big uh, Batman 66 vibes, like he was going to start grappling up. Yeah. Uh, they should have filmed it in the same way. They should have had the camera on the side. They should have filmed <laughs> it on the side. Uh, yeah. Actually, I'll, I'll keep on the Riddler for a second because I think that, that, you know, I'd like to hear if you have any extra thoughts about the Riddler himself rather than just the copy accuracy, Neil. Uh, but before I, I give you the mic, I just want to say one of my favourite things as well about the Riddler is in that scene um, in the asylum when you realise that he thinks that Batman is in on it and he thinks that Batman's been helping him and he's kind of heartbroken yeah. that he hasn't. And it's just like, wow, like we thought he was mad, right? But, do you know, like he's really mad. Like, I was like, oh my God, that's so, that's almost really creepy that he thinks that he's like his friend and he thinks they've been working together and these these cards have a whole new meaning now. He thinks that he's giving him hints and I think it actually justifies the actions of the Riddler. Like, he's not just doing this because he's like, just, he does this. He's doing this because he also thinks he's helping the Batman help him. Like, he's giving him, like, he's giving him a trail of breadcrumbs. I think that that is just like, whoa, like... I didn't really like watching the first time. I was like, "Oh my god, that's mad!" That he thinks that he's helping. He thinks they're they're in on each other, and that that's a great little uh, way to really like really show the audience this guy is is not just like just a political activist or anything. He really is mad. Um, so any what so yeah, I say I talked about your the comic book accuracy level uh, with you, Neil. But yeah, what did you think of Dana? What did you think of the Riddler? Like, I thought he was excellent. I, yeah. I- I, I loved the the way it was written. I thought it was constructed incredibly well. Um, I was um, annoyed because I was supposed to interview Matt Reeves as part of the interviews that I did with the film, um, but it was he was diagnosed with COVID, so they cancelled the last day of his press. Oh, so I didn't get to talk oh. to him. But I wanted to ask him how he came up with the riddles, and you know, did he have any help with that, or did it, was that purely you know something that he came up with off the top of his head? But I thought they 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 made it really complex and intricate, and it just worked everything about it just worked incredibly well i did think it was interesting how many people thought from the trailers that it was going to turn out that riddler and and batman in this version were going to be brothers or related somehow so that was an interesting misdirection that obviously didn't come to be in the film yeah yeah um i know that some of that's fleshed out in a there's a novel that i've not had a chance to read but there's like a a ya novel that's like a, a kind of precursor to the film that's canonically in in the in the world of it, which fleshes out oh, some of how Riddler came to be where he is. Uh, so they talk right. a lot about the whole orphanage idea in there, and also I think it comes up in that about his forensic accountant training as well. So that's all that's all kind of well documented in this book. But 
I thought that was really interesting the way that it it kind of lent itself to being a particular type of narrative that you could you could think was predictable that they were going to say oh god yeah there you go it turns out Thomas Wayne had an affair these two were brothers one of them ended up you know the rich one that lived in the penthouse and the other one ended up in the in the ruined orphanage but I was glad it didn't it didn't go with that because it was interesting the way they they did handle it in the end anyway because it's interesting because they actually do do that, but with Catwoman, of course, because, you know, it's like they have that turn. OK, yeah. he might not be going to, to the Riddler, but we have got a, one of those situations where look at, uh, you know, poor Selena Kyle, you know, struggling, you know, living mm-hmm. a normal life when she has her her dad played by the absolutely excellent uh, John Sturo, uh, who's yeah. living a life of luxury and, you know, obviously dancing around in the the blood of Thomas Wayne as well you know that that I also thought that was a really nice little uh, little nod um when he when they obviously for at first it's thought that Maroney kills his family then it's thought that it's that Falcone and then I, I love the, the the line from Alfred where he's like it could just been a thug who wanted yeah. the money and it's like I oh, really nice that they 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 made sure that that, that was still covered because you know it's up to you yourself i don't think they're going to go back to that in the next two films i think this is going to be your own thing but i like the fact that um that they left it open and kind of gave the the hint back to the uh the usual batman story uh, my friend actually uh lee that i want to go see it who was i i it was quite good because it was nice to see like the thoughts of someone that isn't like involved in the world of film critics not in, like a pretentious way but just like kind of you know the, the average viewer or whatever someone that doesn't watch a nerdy amount of films every year what they'd think about it uh, and, and he loved it. He didn't have a problem with the three-hour runtime. I was worried that like people might. He didn't have a problem at all, personally. And he messaged. He said it was great. He loved it. He thought it was excellent. All that stuff. And then I got a message from him uh, <laughs> a couple of hours later. Um, oh yeah, I forgot to mention um, when we watched it. One big problem with the film. I was like, oh, what was that? And I was like, oh god, what was he going to say? And he was like, replied, no slow mo pearls. I was like, yeah, that's the problem. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, you know, you're you're not wrong. That is the that, that was the problem. Okay, that I want to move. That is objectively true. There are no slow mo pills in this film. Yeah, there's even slow mo pills in Joker, and there's no slow mo pills in this. Yes. Which, yeah. Oh. For so long, I was like, when I was first saying, I was like, they're going to link this in with Joker. They're going to link this in with Joker. But they didn't link this in with Joker. Uh, but they did link this in with the Joker. So we don't see much, and we haven't really got much to go off. But of course, they do allude to uh, another Joker appearance, this time by Barry Keane. Uh, of, of course, uh, the Tonals earlier this year. He's also been in um, a lot of things. He was in Killing of a Sacred Deer, uh, The Green Knight, Green of Knight. course. Yeah, yeah saying. Um, and a lot else, of course. He's an established uh, actor. Um, so we got a little hint of of the Joker uh, in, and the first Irish Joker. And um, we we don't really see much of. Of, of him, you see a little bit of his makeup. I've got to say, I wasn't particularly sold on what we did see personally. I thought it looked a little bit off, but maybe that will be changed in the in the next uh, iteration when it's to be done. But I was thinking, uh, Neil, uh, about how we had seen like three live action Joker renditions in the first, what, well, like 60 years of Batman and. In the first seventy years of Batman, we've seen like three live-action Jokers, and then in the past five years, we've seen the same amount. So, do you think that it's too early to to throw another Joker in the mix, or do you think that Batman audiences are always going to want to see the Joker? So, why bother delaying it? Good question. Uh, I'm on the side of uh, why delay it. He needs to be there. Um, I just feel like it's the kind of character. It's almost like 
making if you'd made a Batman without Gordon, it would be fundamentally mm. wrong. I feel like there are you know if you're if you're doing a Batman at some point, there has to be an Alfred, there has to be a Gordon, and there has to be a Joker. They're just so intrinsically linked that they he just has to be there at some point. I think it would be wrong not to. I also don't. I would imagine when you hand the keys to a new director, they they're going to want to do it because it's just such a legendary character. You'd have mm. to be really strong-willed to to own the keys to Gotham and not want to do your spin on the Joker. Yeah, I've got to say I'm very thankful I didn't do it the first one because I think that would have been too much. Yeah, having definitely would have been too much. Um, do you think there's any possibility that what we see isn't the Joker? I've heard a few people say it could have been the Mad Hatter. But I I don't know what you think. I personally think that's pretty ridiculous. They're not going to try and uh, they're not going to they're not going to say to audiences, look at this guy. Just joking, it's not the Joker. They're definitely not right. Matt Reeves has now said. I mean, he's actually said it now. He has said that is the Joker. He, the, oh, the, I didn't the, see that. The oh, words. No. I mean, that's only in the last kind of twenty four hours that he's actually spoken about it in in a couple of interviews. So it it has been stated. It was funny because at the screening that I was at to my third one. Um, to the first time kind of not surrounded by critics. Uh, it was funny because uh, uh, you, you heard the kind of, like, the room went very, very quiet. People suddenly went, and then you got that. Is that? Yeah. And then I, there was, like, this mix of people in the room where it was like, Joker, 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 Two-Face? The guy next to me was like, is that Two-Face? Because obviously yeah. there is, I mean, <laughs> yeah. his face is kind of messed up, so there you could kind of take that. And you only see half of it as well, to be fair. So you could kind of interpret that as potentially being two-faced. But um, Matt Reeves has said it is it is the Joker. It could be the only thing I wish, though, I wish they hadn't published his name in the cast list that they put out a couple of weeks before the film, because I felt yeah. that kind of ruined it, even though he was referred to as unseen Arkham prisoner. I think it just yeah. ruined the fact that, that something was going to happen. Am I, am I not right in saying he was actually in the cast list written as a poli- as an uh... GCPD officer. Yes, he was. So he was supposed to be uh, Stanley Merkel, I want to say, is that the name? Who yes. is um, uh, Jim Gordon's partner in Batman Year One. Right. So what Reeves has said is, um, for some reason, that they felt Barry's name had to be in there in the cast list from the beginning. I guess maybe they thought at some point that someone might find out he was in this. They thought, you know, if we go ahead and say he's in it, then then let's kind of get ahead of the game. So when they did the, the teaser trailer at Fandom last year dc fandom and they put out a cast list they had to make a snap decision as to what to call him so they called him stanley merkel because he uh, reeves said he felt that would be fairly rational to, uh, based on the the kind of story that people knew that they were making for the film and the fact that the gcpd was going to be such a big part of it so he mm-hmm. kind of that was why they went with that name but it was always going to be joker and there is actually and there is a second scene that has now been confirmed as having been deleted where uh, Batman would sneak into Arkham um, when he's kind of at his lowest point in this story and he would go to Joker to have a conversation with him kind of Hannibal style about trying to get into the mindset of the Riddler and Joker would help him out um, and I think there's the Reeves has now confirmed one piece of dialogue from that scene was confirming that it's almost a year to a day uh, since that version of the Joker has been locked up and he, he refers to it as their anniversary and that was kind of supposed to be the tease that there's history between these two characters but he he's also said that this is he's not fully the Joker yet, so that's why no makeup, no green hair yet. So he's something has happened, but he is not quite the Joker as yet. That's very oh, interesting. Okay. I would be very interested to see that scene between Batman and Joker. Mm, <clears throat> me too. Um, yes, yeah, me, me too. 
Uh, I, it's an interesting setup for the next film because, of course, we do have um, no Carmine, but we've still got the Riddler being around, as you said previously. Whether it will be in the second or third, I imagine the Riddler, we, this is not the last we've seen of him. Um, we have, of course, got the Joker coming in. Uh, there's been a lot of talk of additional characters uh, that could be coming in, uh, like the likes of Two-Face has been discussed a lot recently, um, or, or Mr. Freeze. But you've also uh, got one person who is obviously going to be a major hand in the in the discussed power struggle, which is uh, going to be Penguin. I think this is the last thing we talk about before we, we end the episode, but I just wanted to quickly discuss uh, Penguin here. Um, so, as we said earlier, the, the Riddler, not much like Jim Carrey. Um, I don't think that you could say that there's many similarities between Danny DeVito and uh, <laughs> Colin Farrell here. Uh, this is a very different interpretation of the character. Both but... in heavy prosthetics. I think that's about it. Really? I thought that I thought DeVito just had a nose like that. <laughs> Lewis. Damn, that that's makeup's me. good, isn't it? That makeup's it is. really good. <laughs> It is. Before we get on to Penguin, I were, I do want to interject on the 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 oh, Joker conversation. Typical, typical. Very you briefly, I do. Yeah, I always, I always want to get a word in. Um, but I, I don't know whether it's obviously uh, you're a big fan of the comics, Neil. I'm not a big fan of. Well, I'm not. I'm not a big fan of the comics. I just. <laughs> read them. Um, I I do kind of disagree. I do wish we'd get a Batman story without the Joker for once. Um, I feel like he is the best. He's probably the best comic book villain. He's up there with the best villains ever written, ever uh, put to film. Uh, and I think if you do him every single time, he kind of is going to lose the impact. Um, yeah, I, I, I do want a break from him. And I wish that this Reeves trilogy gave us the break from him. Um, and I, I, I'm very intrigued to see the take on the Joker that we're getting. Because like Sam, you said, um, I wasn't a huge fan of the glimpse that we got. Um, but it was barely even a glimpse, so it feels wrong to judge it based on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I do just wish that we'd have a break from the Riddler. Um, but anyway, the, Joker. the Penguin. The Joker, yeah, <laughs> sorry, the Joker. Um, but anyway, the Penguin, the makeup on Penguin is flawless. I know, I think we spoke about this in our spoiler-free review, so I'll only be brief on the actual makeup. Um, it's unbelievable. I mean, Colin Farrell is not in this film penguin is in yeah. this film this is not i i can't find colin farrell in this performance anywhere he is completely absent and i mean that in a good way his performance is transformative he i can't imagine colin farrell reading these lines i can't imagine colin farrell doing this role uh, and the fact that it is him is blowing me away it doesn't look like prosthetics it's unbelievable makeup it's genuinely unbelievable makeup um, I can't even believe that that's not a real person. That's prosthetics. Yeah, I was and thinking pro- earlier when I was thinking about it, I was like, I probably have a better chance. If I was completely like blanked, like didn't know, I probably have a better chance of working out that John Hurt is in The Elephant Man than I do that Colin Farrell is in this film. <laughs> yeah, that's a fair thing to say, and I'd agree with you. Um, but yeah, and his performance as well. It's a fantastic performance. I'd love to see more of Penguin. I know that there's talk about a Penguin spin-off series. Yeah, definitely uh, happening. Well, I'm very excited for that. I didn't know that it was definitely happening. I thought it was rumoured. Um, I'm very excited for that. I think Penguin is one of the highlights of this film. Uh, and I can't wait to see more of him. Uh, the same is true of Catwoman. I hope we see more of Catwoman. Obviously, the ending is open, open-ended open a little bit. But with Catwoman, I think Zoe Kravitz is amazing. 
Uh, I think she's the most complex character in the film. Uh, she's layered. Uh, she's intriguing. Uh, I think her performance is the best, in my opinion. Uh, she's just fantastic. I can't wait to see more. Um, and to have a layered, uh, complex, well-performed bisexual character was great as well. Um, you know, it's not kind of justified. It's not uh, a part of the plot. It's just there. She has this uh, Annika uh, and then she loses Annika and her performance when she loses Annika is devastating. Uh, and then she kind of falls for Batman as well. Uh, and I'm excited to see where that goes. I hope she is back. I don't know how it goes. I don't know if this has happened in the comics since she comes back, but it's obviously left very open-ended. She says that she's leaving. I hope she comes back because she is the highlight of this film for me. Every single time she's on screen, uh, I just wanted more of her. And I think as well, a few people have said this and a few people have disagreed with this. Um, that she's not sexualized. I don't think she's sexualized. A lot of few people have said that she is. I don't think she is. I don't think she um, is. No, I don't I, feel I think, like she is either. Yeah, someone said that the shot of her, cha- the fact that Batman's watching her get changed is uh, sexualized. I, I say that. <laughs> that's not it. You know, a woman in her underwear isn't inherently sexualized. And if you no. think it is, then that's that's an issue with you, not with the film. Um, yeah. And she's not like it's not like she's wearing sexy lingerie. She's wearing very practical underwear, and it's also acknowledge very much that that's a creepy thing for Batman to do in the film. He's not aware of these social conventions. Um, yeah. And the fact that there's not a shot, like in The Dark Knight Rises, of you know her getting on a motorbike from behind, where her, her bum is the focus of the shot. There, there's nothing like that. I think. She, anyway, this was about the Penguin. How have I gotten on the camera? <laughs> I, I, actually want to st- I actually would like I don't to, know to how. stop you for a second. Yeah, uh, I don't know how I got on to Catwoman. No, I want to discuss about Catwoman. Something oh, you right, said okay. about uh, her bisexuality. Which I was going to mm. say, do you think is this is 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 it obviously it's great to have diversity represented, though, is it not an example similar to we discussed in Jungle Cruise that the, they want to get the kudos but they don't want to put the work in because they don't openly say it. They just call her a friend. She calls she calls her babe on the phone, but they never outwardly discuss her as being anything romantic. It's all very implied. Do you think this is an example of a studio not willing to because of whatever stupid reasons? You know, should we be being praised this, or do you think that that I'm go- I, I, that I'm out of pocket for saying that? I I, I don't know. I, think, I didn't necessarily think that they went far enough. Just at least I think add an one element. line in. Yeah, I think there's an element of that. Um, there could have been just a, a throwaway line where she, you know, when she's upset, she could have said like, "I loved her" or something like that. Um, but I, I kind of get what you mean, but I do. I don't think it's comparable to Jungle Cruise in the slightest. Um, I think mainly because we uh, don't have to sit through um, Jungle Cruise. Yeah, or Jack Whitehall. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I don't think it's comparable to Jungle Cruise uh, in that regard. Um, But I do kind of get what you're saying. Um, But at the same time, I, 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 yeah, I I get what you're saying. Actually, I I agree with what you're saying. But I do think it's it is deserving of praise because it's not a central thing in the film. It's not like they're going out of their way to say it, and I don't feel like they're going out of their way to not say it either. They, you know, they're clearly affectionate to one another. There's clearly a strong relationship there. They live together. Um, it, it could have gone farther, but I don't think it needed to go farther. I think it gave us a well fleshed out character who happened to be bisexual rather than a a well fleshed out bisexual person. A well fleshed out bisexual character. They just gave us a character who happened to be bisexual, and I think it was done very well in the film. Yeah, I feel I bad. Agree. I feel bad for the uh, on the subject of like, you know, you know, subjects that the, the studios find tough and such. Um, I, I I feel bad for all the um, like 
right-wing YouTube channels that were enjoying this film and then decided they had to dis- suddenly dislike yes. the film because of that line about straight white men. And then <laughs> loads of fists had to go up in the air. I saw Ben Shapiro tweeted about the film afterwards. It's not very good, all that stuff. Yeah. Um, so unfortunately, you know, <laughs> those people unfortunately have to hate this film. As well as Snyder fans that I've seen on Twitter, like they might have enjoyed the film, but unfortunately they legally Hashtag can't like it. Bat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> They have to legally say, oh, I actually thought it was shit, uh, regardless of what they actually think. Um, no, 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 it's not. The fans making an hour and 47 minutes of the podcast anyway, so I can say that actually happily without any worry of repercussions, actually. Um, but yeah, going back to the penguin after a large diversion. Thanks, Lewis. Um, I apologize profusely. <laughs> do you think that, that, you know, again, once again, this is the most complicated Batman, do you think that it's nice to see a penguin which isn't? necessarily a laughable character which i think that he's been reduced to recently um i say recently you know over the past however many decades um having him as like an actual inti- uh, you know intimidating mobster i guess would definitely be closer to the um the comic book version um and obviously linking him with the falcon uh, syndicate is an interesting choice as well um so how did you feel about this version of the the, the, the penguin Neil? yeah I, I think he was i think he was really really good he is one that tends to get more variation in his interpretation in comics depending on who's the artist or who's the writer i mean sometimes he will look more like the danny devito version and other times he will look more like this version um rarely does he look like the version from gotham the tv series um, yeah <laughs> so it's uh, it's it's nice to see a different version of him on film but one that in a similar vein to, to riddler still echoes the the core aspects of the character from the comic book and puts him in a position that I think makes him a, a better character for driving the story forwards and and having his own story to tell as well. I mean, when you look at Danny DeVito's version, he is absolutely amazing. And, you know, like I said, it's one of my favourite films of all time. But that isn't a character who could have carried on through multiple films. That was, yeah, a, you know, that was your classic one-and-done villain. Yeah. I think we've talked about every basically every Batman film, every version in the course of the podcast in different comparisons. Uh, and you touched on it for a half a second, Lewis. I don't know if you two agree, but I think this is the... Uh, of course, comic books, it's linked to an awful lot of comic books, and you say things like, like Year One and the, the kind of darker stuff in the comics. But when it comes to you know other media... The closest comparison I'd give from the Batman would be the Arkham games. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's the thing that I and I think you've played those, Lewis. So I don't think you're a big yeah, gamer, but you have played those. So that is the thing that I'd say this is the most like. Yeah. Which I think is a, is a strong thing. The Arkham games are great. Um, but yeah, it feels like that. That's the closest that this is. It's a bit tough actually having this discussion because there are so many positive aspects and there are so many good performances. Uh, it feels bad to leave things out. So I guess just because it's the only thing we haven't really talked about, I will throw in a bit of a, the only thing we, we've, we've really kind of avoided is I would argue, I imagine this to be quite a small character. I thought this was going to be a, a Pattinson Kravitz film. I was actually surprised at that kind of how little Catwoman was in it based on how much we saw of her in the promotional material. Um, and I was very much surprised of how much of a lead character um, Jeffrey Wright's Commissioner Gordon is or Lieutenant Gordon here um, because of course he's always an important character but I think this one actually quite a lot like Batman Begins where he's a, the second most important character but I was surprised here of just how much Jeffrey Wright's uh, 
uh, James Gordon is is involved. And and I thought he was absolutely excellent. I think it's really hard to, to decide between the best performances here of Pattinson, Kravitz, Dano, Wright, Totoro, Farrell. Between them all, it's, it's a very hard discussion yeah. to decide the best. But I think that Jeffrey Wright is definitely up there. I think that he's mm. put a really interesting, really grisly version of Gordon. I, I really, really enjoyed it. I think you praised a lot of this. So. Yeah, definitely. I completely agree. I was impressed. Obviously, again, I've not read many comics, so I don't know how faithful uh, this aspect is to the comics. Uh, but other interpretations of Gordon seem to be he's on the sidelines. He's not kind of on the ground with Batman. They, they meet up. Gordon says, go and do this. Batman goes and does it. They meet up again. Um, in this one, they were, they're on the ground together. They do a lot of it together. And they really feel like partners. Uh, and I love that about uh, this approach to Gordon and Jeffrey Wright's performance is absolutely brilliant. Uh, you know, the, the haters of his casting have been silenced by his performance, which is amazing. I mean, to me, just going off this, he's a very different approach to Gordon than, say, Gary Oldman's one. Obviously, this is uh, much younger in the Batman's career, and I just feel like he's playing it much more like he's the only good cop in the GCPD, whereas Gary Oldman's uh, Gordon uh, seems a lot more, has a lot more trust in the police department in general, discord and feels like a lone wolf in that way um but i think this is my favorite interpretation of gordon that we've seen i think he seems uh wise and uh very competent in his job very competent with batman uh and it's it's it was brilliant to see and yeah i think uh jeffrey wright's amazing i think you know if, if i had to rank them i'd go with kravitz then wright uh wright's just unbelievable in this film he seems to really care about what he's doing and care about Batman as well. Like when at the end, when Batman's dangling off the thing uh, and Jeffrey Wright says, how do I go up there? He wants to go and help Batman. I think he feel like he really cares about Batman. Um, and they have this link together. That's really good. And I like the very brief exchange. Well, they didn't actually exchange anything. Bruce, while they're at the mayor's funeral, Bruce Wayne is listening to Gordon speak. And you know, obviously Gordon doesn't know that Bruce Wayne is Batman. But Bruce Wayne looks at Gordon and just the look in Pattinson's face is it's so, so well done. And yeah, Jeffrey Wright, brilliant in this. Yeah, that, that um, bit when he's like, oh, um, you know, the, I don't, you don't, don't trust anyone or whatever. It's like, I trust you. It's like, oh man, the bromance here. Oh, it's, yeah, I just love definitely. the connection between them two. Definitely. Um, yeah, I loved it. Um, well, this is the last time I'll, I'll ask about a specific character. Uh, <laughs> but Neil... Give me your thoughts. Yeah. Jeffrey uh, Wright. Again, um, pitch perfect to the comic books for where these two should be in their relationship at this point. Um, and and that's not to say that I wouldn't have taken, a, you know, any variance on that. I'm not, I'm not saying the film has to follow everything to the latter, but yeah, it, I was very impressed to see them do that and, and bring that to the screen as well as they did. I, I went into this kind of thinking, I'm hoping for something specific about the way these two are going to be with each other. And I was still blown away by it, even though it was along the lines of what I was kind of anticipating. Um, Gary Oldman, I've always held him really high regard in that role, but actually I, I think Jeffrey Wright surpasses him. He, he is, he is a Gordon that feels like the Gordon of the comics. Who's so, so kind of his, his origin story is that he moves to Gotham during year one. He kind of arrives at the same time as Batman emerges 
Um, he's got a pregnant wife at the time who follows on after them. Um, and it's this whole thing of he, he has to move into this horrible, corrupt city that everyone knows is going to be an absolute nightmare to work in. And he's, you know, he's really downbeat about the fact he has to bring his family into this. And really his journey for the first few years of, of Bruce being Batman is is not a fun one. He, he gets beaten down by being the only good cop in the GCPD. And it unfortunately leads to him having quite a few affairs with women who work in the GCPD, which is never right. an aspect of the character that they've ever interpreted on film. Um, but actually, I wonder whether Reeves, based on where we are at the end of this film, may lead into something along those lines in the future. But um, anyway, I'm digressing. Uh, he, uh, he's brilliant. <laughs> it's the short way to put it. Yeah, 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 yeah. He had a good year, actually, Jeffrey Wright, because he was great in this. He was great in yeah. Bond, and he was great in yeah. the French Dispatch. He was the best part of the French Dispatch. So mm-hmm. he's had a very good year. Um, and he's a very, very, very good actor. So it's not really surprising that he is. Um, exactly. I just want to say, as a footnote, I before we leave, I've been I did that thing about June, and I kind of mini reviewed June again because I love June, um, and I forgot to say <laughs> that Warner Brothers have also released another one of the best blockbuster adaptations. I didn't mention it's well, so the Matrix Resurrections, um, which you know, controversially, a lot of people didn't love. I absolutely loved it. I guess the, though, it probably makes sense. I didn't write agree that because that uh, did mention that one because that one is great in spite of Warner Brothers instead of great because of Warner Brothers. So that one is very uh, the most anti Warner <laughs> Brothers film I've ever seen. But I will say that they also knocked the park at the park on that one, or at least Lana did. Um. But I think we're finally coming towards the end of this. So, uh, Neil, at the end of every episode, we review every review. We give a ten, uh, a 10 rating and we also give our man of the match. Of course, that, that word, man is a human, you know, it's a non-gender term, so you can give it to Zoe Kravitz. Um, so we're going to give our, you know, we'll, we'll give our, our, our ratings out of 10 and our personal highlight of the film, whether that be an actor, whether that be a director, a screenwriter, etc. Um, production design, whatever. So I'll start off with my rating, and I am going to give the Batman, I guess unsurprisingly, a 10 out of 10 rating. I think that, you know, I think it's it's one of the best superhero films I've made. It, it's one of the best comic films I've made. It's right at the top for me. For me, it's, it's already surpassed all the rest of Batman. It's my favourite. Uh, I didn't think I'd love anything as much as I love Batman Begins when it comes to Batman, but uh, he absolutely nailed it. Every performance is excellent. The setting, the cinematography, it's all wonderful. The score is beautiful. It's just great. I, I just, I'm, I'm in love with it. So for me, it's just so enjoyable and I have to give it a 10 out of 10. What about you, Neil? Yeah, it's a 10 out of 10 for me as well. It just looks like I said at the, at the top of this. Uh, it's just flawless for me as a Bat fan. Okay. And Lewis? Uh, I'm going to rain on the parade a little bit because I'm going to give it a <laughs> 9 out of 10. Oh, sorry. <laughs> uh, I still think it's amazing. It's incredible. I do have a few tiny issues that we've not managed to get into. I think the ending, the flooding plotline, for me, that's a little bit excessive. It takes it over the top. I think that could have been achieved uh, in a much more uh, less OTT way. Um, So purely off your ratings, can can we say that you think No Way Home is better than this? (laughs) Because you gave that a 10. I did give No Way Home a ten out of ten. That's true. Th- that they are they are ratings for very different reasons, though. They like, are. I, gave I, them do, both a 10, I judge films on a curve. I yeah, they're very curve. different. If I put them on the same curve, then Batman is leagues above No Way Home. Um, but on their own curves, Spider yeah. Man is ten out of ten. Batman is nine out of ten. No, I understand that. Yeah. I understand that completely. Okay, uh, man, the match. Now, 
maybe I don't want to decide this, so I'm going to let you do it first, Lewis, while I think. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, for me, this film is so well done in every aspect. Uh, The production design, uh, we haven't even touched upon it, I don't think, but the sound design is unfathomably excellent in this. Mm -hmm. Unbelievable. The car chase scene. Uh, again, we haven't even spoken about the car chase scene, which is amazing. The sound design in that scene, the sound design throughout is unbelievable. Costumes, the hair, the makeup, everything is fantastic about this film. So I genuinely could give it to anyone, regardless of whoever you two give it to. I'll agree with you. Uh, having said that, I'm giving it's it to Kurt very... Cobain. <laughs> regardless of that, for me, it's still a very easy decision. And I'm going to give my man of the match to Greg Frazier for the cinematography. I think this is one of the most beautifully captured films i've seen recently perhaps even ever um the using of the light and the shadows works perfectly for batman uh, and the color palette as well that he picked is is beautiful and this is you know greg frazier flawless job well done i i'm going over my head my head the the words pattinson dano reeves just circling around my brain oh yeah by the <laughs> way on a technicality if you have to pick someone that's done multiple things, i.e. Matt Reeves, you have to pick which part, which aspect. So Matt Reeves, the director, and Matt Reeves, the writer, are two different people because I don't like the idea of someone just doing a lot of things and getting more praise. Um, and it's been going around, do I give it to Reeves for direction? Do I give it to Pattinson? Do I give it to Dano? And I think I'm going to have to give it to... I'm giving it to to the Batman himself. I'm giving it to Rob Pattinson. Um, I thought it was an interesting casting, but I've always been a fan uh, to say he has a performance as good as his performance in The Lighthouse is, is very impressive. I think the fact that he does so much acting that isn't, you know, he's he, he does, like Dano's performance, as great it is, is all about these big motions and his madness. And, woo, but I think Pattinson, it's all about the subtlety of it all. A lot of his acting is just with his eyes. And I think the way that he ghosts around in the background of that first scene uh, when they first see the... Um, that the mayor's dead and he's like ghosting around and he's just a, an obstacle. I think, you know, it's just, he's, he's kind of awkward and clunky in the middle of it. I just think, Oh man, he's just a wonderful towering presence. Uh, so for me, it's, I'm getting it to Rotten Pattinson. So Neil, who is your man of the match? Yeah, I'm going to give it to Pattinson as well. I think, I mean, it's every time there's a new Batman, even as far back as Michael Keaton, there's always some sort of incredible, vocal backlash before anyone's even see the still image never mind a single frame of yeah. a film and pattinson was no uh you know he was no different there was a the usual wave of nope sorry he can't do it and i think not only did he prove people wrong i think he he really you know he absolutely 180'd anyone's negative opinion of whether he could take on that yeah. role he smashed it unbelievably absolutely He's- one of the best actors in the world right now. He really is. Um, and again, the way that the criticism that he received in the first decade of his career um, has been so uh, completely and utterly destroyed. The rep- that reputation has been so absolutely destroyed yeah. by some of the stuff he's done over the last five years to see him come from, from you know, the, the hate that he received to doing things like Good Time, The Lighthouse and this. Um, it's just, yeah, it's just wonderful. Okay. Yeah. So that that is the end. We've gone for a long time. It's a bit like... 
this reminds me of the No Time to Die episode where we just talked about that for like two hours and 20 minutes. Um, <laughs> we've had a bumper episode uh, just about everything that we thought about uh, the Batman. We've not even had time to talk about Alfred um, <laughs> or the Batmobile or that chase scene that we discussed. Yeah, the there are so many other things that we The chase scene, really good. good. Guys, film. the car chase scene was excellent. Can you just yeah. throw that one out before we finish? Yeah, car, car chase scene, scene, brilliant. One of the best scenes in... Club, all the club scenes are brilliant. Club yeah. Everything's brilliant. I mean, every brilliant. scene is brilliant. There is no bad yeah. scene. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. that's true. <laughs> I think actually, I'll tell you something that's goofy. What I thought was goofy is that when when the Batman starts flying and there's like the screw, the, the shots of his like head at the top of the screen. <laughs> I think that's goofy as fuck. Like that's the only time. I I was the, like, the... That's the only time I was like that. This looks well off. <laughs> Personally, I think that perhaps slightly. And for me, I also thought it was quite goofy when the bomb went off and he was stood right next to it and he was. He, but in the no slow mo, you see mark. you see him cover his mouth face. Yeah, but there's still thing. it's still a bomb. It's not like it was a fire, it's a bomb. Uh, If you stand next to a bomb, you will die. And he's fine. He's he's literally built different. He's got a he's got a uh, you know, he he should have died if it weren't if it if he was next to that bomb. Three out of ten. I take back my ring. Three out of ten. Sounds like sounds like a JL review. (laughs) Um Yes. It made no sense. It's logically redundant. Two yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, wonderful. Oh, last thing I was thinking, I'll say actually, the opening monologue is also really, really good. I love that. A lot of people say it's really cheesy. Yeah. I don't agree. The closing monologue wonderful. as well. Oh, man, can we just talk about the use of narration hours? throughout? Two brilliant. more hours. We're doing a four-hour Batman episode. <laughs> <laughs> it's the Snyder cut. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly for sure. The Houston cut is the four-hour version. Yeah. Um, release the vag cut. Okay, thank you very <laughs> yes. much, Neil. Uh, for for coming on for giving us Thanks. the the Thank comic you. book expertise that we required, um, yeah, you, know, you knew so it. much more than we do. <laughs> yes, I have you know that I've read a whole like seven Batman comics, so That's I've read the core of the house. Me. Yeah, um, yeah. So thank you very much, Neil. Um, so where can we find you? Uh, so you can find my uh, my written musings on on the world of film and TV at uh, getyourcomicon.co.uk, and our podcast is on all major platforms. Okay, very good. Uh, and we should be dropping uh, the SAG episode around the same time as this. If it's not already out, it'll be out in the next few days. So that is a now outdated view on the SAG uh, nominations and wins. Spoilers, you can hear me get angry about Coda. Um in the next week or so we should be doing stuff on the alternative Oscars if you want to get involved with the alternative Oscars and you haven't yet done so you can do so by contacting the podcast or by contacting Jordan Luke McDonald uh, you can go vote on all of your favourite films performances um, screenplays direction etc that wasn't nominated at the Oscars and we'll be doing our personal choices and um, our and the the results of the nominations uh, next week on the pod so you see that then uh, if you want to follow me or Lewis, you can do so at Sam H Media or LJWR. No, no, Lewis underscore no. JWR. No, just Lewis JWR. That's it. Sorry, I completely <laughs> forgot. Sorry. Uh, I wouldn't bother following him anyway. Um, you can also find the podcast at Now Showing Pod. Uh, we're proud to be members of the Music City Driver Network. You can find them at MCDI Pod on Twitter or their website for a whole host of articles, podcasts, and more about the likes of movies, sports, and music uh, We, if you want to support the podcast the best way to do so is by giving us a 5 star rating on Apple Podcasts uh, and we will see you next time goodbye Lewis goodbye say, thank you goodbye bye <laughs> bye <laughs>